just signing this Christmas card here, the final one that'll be sent out. I think it'll make it. Don't worry. Hope you get a lump of coal. Sincerely, Farwell to Wellington County OPP. You know you're not allowed to do that, right? Like you know that what you did ain't what you're supposed to do. We'll get to more of that in just a moment as we welcome you to the program for this Thursday, the 21st of December. Don't look outside because you won't believe then that it is indeed the 21st of December. But this is, believe it or not, here we are, our final show together of 2023. I don't know why I get so nostalgic And I have all of these feelings inside of me on this show, but here we are. I guess it's true what they say. I remember being a younger man and hearing about older people getting emotional at, like, TV commercials and stuff and Hallmark movies and the like. And here I am, and I'm feeling all the feels as we have our final show together of 2023. When next we meet, it will be January the 2th of 2024. Larry Fedorik will be here tomorrow. And then over the holiday period, you'll hear a little bit of Brock Greenhalgh. You'll hear a little bit of what they call best of. I like to refer to it as least worst. And at least one of you who took the time to email me late last evening saying, I heard there was going to be a best of your show, and all then I heard was dead air. (laughs) I see what you did there. But you know what? That might very well be the best I could do over the past year. But here we are on the final show together of 2023. I am taking tomorrow off to extend the Christmas break by just a wee bit. And I feel like the kid on the last day of school before the holidays. You know, where you're like, is anything really going to happen today? Like, are you doing the normal day there, teacher? We'll probably goof off a little bit during the show today. At minimum, we've got our flip side, which we do every Thursday morning at 1130. So we'll have some fun with that. And I suspect there'll be an opportunity for shenanigans throughout other parts of the show. I wanted to share with you just what a great feeling it was. So I went last night to a neighborhood pub that I have not visited in a really long time. Like, it's been way too long since I was at this particular pub. But I was getting together with some buddies, and and some showed up unexpectedly. So it was almost like a mini college reunion at the same time. But there I was in this place I haven't been in far too long. And as soon as I walked in the door, because it's that small neighborhood pub, right? I saw the owner, and... He greeted me like an old friend, obviously calls out by name, but it wasn't just coming over with a handshake. It came over with a big bear hug that we gave each other. It had been that long since we've seen one another. And so we greeted one another warmly, and then I got to spend some time with some old friends. And then I ran into, and this was one of the most interesting parts, coincidentally, of the evening, I ran into another old friend who I met at this same neighborhood pub. We bonded over our mutual love of the Pittsburgh Steelers and craft beer. And there he was in the same place last night where I used to see him frequently. He's now a city councilor in 
pensioner. I'm still doing this. And there we were at the same old neighborhood pub, and he too was just stopping in, hadn't been there in a while, but was out doing some errands and thought, you know what, it's going to top off these errands nicely, a cold beer on the way home. That's what a neighborhood pub is all about. It was kind of like being at Cheers, except nobody shouted Norm when I walked through the door. But nonetheless, it was a really nice experience. Felt good. It was a a very holiday-like feeling last night. Uh, To the the matter at hand that I did allude to as as we began today, and I just want to take this serious note, and then I'll get right to your phone calls, because, you know, the moment we start the show and you hear that awesome music to start your day, phone lines do open, and they stay that way until 12.58 p.m. That's when I have to sign off and get things over to the news center and then now you know with Rob Snow. 519-570-2545 star 570 1-800-570-5715 You would have heard during all news mornings Josh Corey was following the story and it was just mentioned in that 9 o'clock update with Luke. I don't know what I was going to say strange incident, unfortunate incident. Look, it's it's a mistake, a clear mistake on the part of whomever that Wellington County OPP officer was investigating that fatal collision near Guelph yesterday when a member of the media, who I know a little bit, Richard Vivian, from his days with the Mercury over to now Guelph today, and he was on the scene as a reporter doing his job and he was interfered with in the process of trying to do his job. It's wrong, full stop. A mistake was made. I completely understand that there were some heightened emotions, obviously, around the scene of a fatal collision, but Richard's been doing his job long enough that he knows where he should be and how in the way he should be, which is to say he wouldn't have been in the way at all. He was there to do his job and his camera and then his SD card were confiscated. The camera later returned, the SD card not yet, so whatever pictures he took is are currently in the hands of police and the coroner's office. And look, there's just zero reason for this to have happened. And according to the statement from Wellington County OPP, the OPP is reviewing the circumstances of the interaction between the member of the media and one of the OPP investigators The OPP respects the freedom of the press and values its relationships with the media while also taking a victim-centered approach during our investigations. The OPP respects the freedom of the press. No, I don't think you do. I actually, what I think is that you don't. And I fully expect the next bit of information we get from Wellington County OPP is an unreserved apology to the reporter who was on the scene unjustly detained and had his equipment confiscated it is wrong full stop somebody made a mistake along the way apologize for it give the man his sd card back and let's move on but it's really unfortunate it's 2023 this sort of thing should have been decades in our rearview mirror nonetheless here we are all right let's get to the phones i promised we would paul is on the line with us paul good morning Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? Uh, not bad. Listen, everyone that knows you knows that most certainly if they call in 
and mention the name of a sports team that shall not be named at this point, they're going to hear a click as you hang up on them. That is correct. So now you have to understand, you know me well enough that on this day, the shortest day of the year. Isn't it exciting? Aren't you excited? The winter solstice (laughs) means winter is here to stay. Only for a short time. Don't let the door hit your derriere on the way out with your nonsense of winter. Winter is here. (laughs) Get out the sleds. Get out the snowshoes. Get out the skis. Get out the ice fishing gear. Going to take my grandson ice fishing year this year, and we are going to enjoy the winter. Where are you going to find ice fishing, Paul? How far north are you going to have to go? It's going to be eight degrees here on Christmas Day. Uh, yeah, uh, right now, but uh, uh, when the conditions are right, I will go up and I will pick up my grandson, and we will drive two and a half uh, miles down the road and be on Rice Lake. Nice. That's what I was. A, it was an amusing conversation with my grandson. He's only six. Uh, he just learned how to fish this past summer. The uh, I told him we were going to go out and drill a hole in the ice, and he was looking at me and he says, "How do you hit a hole that small, casting?" And your answer was, "We don't. <laughs> we don't cast out to the fish. We got to drill a hole where the fish are and yes. drop the line down to them." There you go. Listen, you enjoy your uh, holidays and uh, look forward to talking to you in the new year. Maybe hey, I'll find my know. way down to Preston for uh, a wobbly pop. Yeah, you, you never know. Maybe something. May, maybe you'll say something dumb and I'll have to call back and correct you today. <laughs> that might be. The odds are I've still got three hours and 45 minutes. Chances are. Very good. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Paul. Nice to hear from you. I only, like, Paul is right. The really only rule on this show is don't name, don't say the name of the team that shall not be named, and I will not hang up the phone on you. Although I have been known before, because what Paul likes to do, you see, is use the summer solstice against me. This is one of my favorite days of the year, because we've made it. Tonight, sometime just after 10, the winter solstice will arrive, and that means beginning tomorrow, However, incrementally, we begin getting a wee bit more daylight. We're on that trajectory back up to normalcy in the world, right? But then on June 21st, or the 20th, depending on when it falls, usually the 21st, but on the summer solstice, Paul likes to phone me and remind me that winter is coming. I will say this. I have learned to embrace the colder weather. I have. Really, In my slightly wiser, only slightly wiser adult years, I have come to the conclusion that the real problem with winter is not necessarily the cold and the snow, whatever. It's because it just gets in the way, right? Like, isn't it easier to get up in the morning and go out to the car or go to the bus stop When you don't have snow and ice and anything else to deal with, you don't have to worry about bundling up all of those different things. It's just easier to navigate one's life when the bad weather is not in your way, right? But if you just dress for the weather, as my old colleague 
Glenn used to like to say, there's no such thing as bad weather, only inappropriate clothing. And if it's one thing the pandemic taught me, when there was nothing to do except walk around, and I walked a lot, I really became one with the seasons. And I would dress appropriately, and I would take those long walks with the dogs, and everything was just fine. It's that kind of in-between weather that gets you down, and certainly, oh my goodness, with the lack of daylight. So we've made it. Today is the least amount of daylight we're going to get. And after this, we start going back in the right direction, baby. Bring it on. Bring it on. Andre is on the phone with us this morning as well. Good morning, Andre. Good morning, Mikey. On the first day of winter, my birthday came to me. Wait, this is your birthday? Yes, sir. Happy birthday, Andre. Thank you. 55. (laughs) I feel so young. You don't look a day over 32. Thank you. Well, I have to say that uh, it was very strange because the only phone call I get is from doctors during the day, and I got a phone call last night from my sister-in-law checking out on me. You got a call from Vicky. From Nick, from Nicole. Nicole. Nikki, not Vicky. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, checking out to make sure I'm okay because you, 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 you're checking out on me, so uh, thank you very much. You're very kind. And... Uh, yeah, it was just a weird feeling that I have people checking on me since my mom and dad passed away 10 years ago. But thank you very much for your kindness. And this is the reason why I'm calling too this morning is uh, I said it last time and I want to say it again to everybody, you know, especially with the news happening this morning. Just please, you know, just be kind, uh, drink, stay home or take a cab, enjoy the, the time out, enjoy you know, um, being united with family. Uh, I had a choir yesterday at the Driftwood uh, Public School. Um, it was just amazing hearing all those kids singing, all the parents united. Um, we have a beautiful, best community, I think, in uh, and in Canada, because I haven't been out of Canada. But uh, I just want to share my joy and uh, happiness and remind everybody to, to, to be kind and to do a little bit more. Um, and my last thing is I can't wait to hear from you before the, the New Year's Eve on uh, Friday the 29th, Mike. I will be back for hockey, guaranteed. Yeah. All right, Andre. Thank you very much for the call. Nice to hear from you. Uh, just to kind of tie a bow on that i had one of those it's a small world after all moments last evening when i went to pick up rosie the pandemic pup from the spa and i did not know until last night at her spa appointment when i picked her up because you know she's got to look good and feel her best for the holidays too right but for all these years we've been taking her to forever loved the pet salon in kitchener and her groomer is Andre's sister-in-law, which I did not know. So we made this connection last night. Well, she did anyway, and and explained the relationship. And then she said, I didn't even know all this time that you were on the show and Andre liked to call the show. So she said, tell me the truth. Like, what do you really think of Andre's phone calls? (laughs) And I said, listen, I love him. Andre is so loyal. Now, sometimes I describe his phone calls like a winding road through the mountains because... It's, it's as if Andre's the only one on the road and he just takes this winding path around. So it's sometimes hard to follow and you have to fill in some blanks. But other than that, I love it. Because Andre, you always know he's out there, he's listening, 
and he contributes on a pretty regular basis. And I'm always happy to hear from him. But I hadn't heard from him in a while. So that's why I said, like, is everything okay? Because, you know, if, if you don't hear from Andre on an almost daily basis, you wonder, is the guy doing okay? I had to check in on Mary not too long ago as well. But then I remembered, oh, yeah, she's down enjoying sunny weather. She escapes the winter like the smart lady that she is. We're going to get through this final show before Christmas together on the program today. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Would you mind if I just took a moment to say the quiet part out loud? Look, I know, but I get it. There will be rolling of eyes, tisk tisking of that cranky old Farwell guy, but somebody has to say the quiet part out loud. And I, I just, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I think that it was, I, I would love to have been a part of the team and the meetings with the marketing team that created the story behind and then ultimately unveiled to the public yesterday the new mascot for Grand River Transit. Look, the story is beautiful. You remember the stuffed bunny that got left behind? So the team at Grand River Transit has created this beautiful little story of Ryder, the bunny that got left behind, and then unveiled a new, like in real life, life-sized bunny mascot, Ryder, the GRT mascot. We all know, like, and I'm not making this up, I'm not exaggerating, we all know that the absolute creepiest of all of the holiday mascots is the Easter Bunny, right? Like, just look up on the internet the creepy pictures of terrified children around these creepy as F Easter Bunnies. And now we have decided that the big bunny, the life-sized bunny, I don't care if it's waving and wearing an I Heart GRT t-shirt. It's creepy as F. And yet, like, I... I we're also going to talk on the show today in about 30 minutes time about discretionary spending and how it was cut during the budget deliberations at the region this year. And that discretionary spending led to cuts in funding for the arts. I never really considered arts funding discretionary spending. Do you know what is discretionary spending? Marketing tactics that create little animated videos. Like, it's cute and all, but that's a lot of money. And then the mascot creepy as all get out i'm sorry like what what were you thinking honestly i i'm i'm sorry i get it tisk tisk me all you want that's a that's a very strange choice to make the creepy bunny is now the mascot for grant i'll tell you what when i see that thing on a bus or a train i ain't getting on board i will wait for the next one thank you very much don't care how long it takes to get there Oy, 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 oy. But this the this is our discretionary spending that we've decided to keep spending hard at work for us in the region. Good job. I'm sorry. I'm sure you worked hard on it. I'm sure you're proud of your creation. Bad choice. Bad choice. That's the quiet part out loud. Tisk tisk me all you want. Bad choice. <laughs> all right. An update from the City News Center is coming up. And then City of Cambridge votes against affordable housing over parking. What gives and where do we go from here? 
We'll talk about that next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Every day is a brand new adventure. Now, it's time to embark on this journey together. Trending this half hour on the Mike Farwell Show. On City News 570. Those are the exact plots of land where uh, some professors at the University of Waterloo who study planning say, if an alien were to come down and look at our cities, why is it in the best parts of our cities where we need people living, where we need people walking to businesses, where we need entertainment, why are they giant empty swaths of concrete? what some residents have described to me as a concrete wasteland. The Mike Farwell Show continues on City News 570 and Rogers TV Cable 20. And that is Ward 7 Councillor for Cambridge, Scott Hamilton, at the meeting of Cambridge Council on Tuesday night when he tabled his motion, seconded by Councillor Corey Kimson, to build affordable housing over parking lots. It's a pretty innovative idea. We've seen it at work in some parts of the world. I think Germany is kind of the pioneer in it. But what the motion was asking for was not that Cambridge begin building tomorrow, but rather just investigate the idea, explore it a little further, come back with a report, and let council know if this idea is in any way feasible. However, Even generating that report was too much for council and the motion was defeated in a 5-4 vote against. The aforementioned councillor for Ward 7, Scott Hamilton, joins us on the show to talk about it. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, thank you. How are you? It's just one of those mornings, you know, you wake up a little under the weather, you're running a bit behind schedule and then all of a sudden you go downstairs and... Your two-year-old has stripped naked and they're doing wind sprints around your kitchen. And you just think, okay, it's going to be one of those Thursdays. I just got to make it work. Oh, the picture you just painted. I love it. I love it. And and this, such is the life of juggling, you know, your job, your uh, council work, and your parenting. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. You, you do the best you can with whatever you've got, right? Um, but she did make it to daycare. Excellent. Uh, baby school. So that, that's great. It's a win. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning to talk about the council meeting about 36 hours ago now. And and, and I wonder, Scott, uh, 36-ish hours later, how you're feeling about the outcome. It was a close vote, but 5-4 against, and there will be no exploration of housing over parking. How are you feeling? Uh, well, I'm obviously a little sad and disappointed the motion didn't go through, but I'm motivated considering the overwhelming amount of support um, that it did receive from pretty much all aspects of uh, of the public and, uh, and and residents. So I'm a little little sad, Mike, but uh, motivated to keep pushing because I think there's still uh, a lot of legs to it. What were some of those supportive comments and from where did they come? Yeah, so, you know, when you're a counsellor, the reality is, we are not experts. Right? There's so many issues that come to us from housing to homelessness to the way that cities function, the way that infrastructure works. So all we can really do, at least this is my personal philosophy, is reach out to those that do have expertise. They might be researchers, they might be practitioners, they might be workers in the field. Reach out to the organizations that deal with the issues that you're you're discussing. Compile all that information, synthesize it, and make a vote based on rational, reasoned study uh, derived from people that really know what they're doing. And so with this motion, the support came from everywhere, from uh, residents that were excited about the idea, 
uh, church leaders and church groups, like for the city, they're a collection of, uh, of, of pastors around Cambridge, uh, business leaders in the community, the Galt BIA also came and supported the motion, and nonprofits as well, like the United Way, uh, Habitat for Humanity, Beyond Homes, they all expressed support and excitement for the motion. Um, academics reached out. Um, I had no prior communication with them at all. They, they reached out, and it was really motivating, like uh, Dr. Brian Desette, and he's Canada's, uh, Canada's research chair in urban planning, um, reached out, he wrote, he wanted to delegate, he couldn't make it, but he said, this is something that you can really lead, um, lead with as a city. You can inspire movements like this across the province in Canada. Um, and finally, staff as well. Of, of course, you consult with staff on these things. And across the board, um, the support was pretty powerful. So that's the motivating part. I think this still has movement to it, and I'll still keep pushing however I can, because uh, I think it will help a lot of people. Were you surprised by any of the arguments put forward by your fellow councillors against the idea of exploring this further? Not necessarily surprised, because it is somewhat unconventional, right? I mean, we have that typical idea of a parking lot in our head, and we just think a parking lot is a parking lot, that's all we can do with it. So, of course, there's going to be questions. Um, And as I mentioned before, I, I can't speak to how my colleagues um, uh, come to the decisions they do, right? That's up to them. And um, so I wasn't really surprised. Um, I, I, I do think that um, the nature of innovation and problem solving is that whenever you have something new, uh, of course, there's going to be questions and there's going to be issues. But you've heard me say this before, Mike, the perfect is the enemy of the good. So to say something isn't perfect, let's throw it out the window. My philosophy is always, well, if it's good, let's work with it and let's problem solve and let's troubleshoot and let's see where it goes. Um, and that's how we create innovative change. That's that's how we, I think, make the world a better place, as cheesy as it sounds, right? I, I'm Everything that we take for granted around us, literally everything, uh, is a solution to a problem that we've forgotten a long time ago. And we've forgotten it because the solutions have come up and we've forgotten why, why that problem even existed. And so I'm hopeful that the same thing can exist with housing. Right now we're in a crisis. We need to think of innovative, out-of-the-box ways to try and solve it. I'm hopeful that we'll come up with something that works. And maybe decades from now, that will just be a normal lived reality. At least that's my dream, Mike. But uh, <laughs> I think we can get there. And I think the people of Cambridge and Waterloo Region uh, agree with that. And they want to keep pushing for that change as well. One of the things that I've been wrestling with in all of this, Scott, is that in our two-tier municipality, the region, so the upper level of local government, is responsible for affordable housing, its management, etc. So I'm just wondering, and maybe you can shed light on this because you're at the council table at the lower tier, the city, but could the city ultimately do any more than other than provide direction to the region to pursue the feasibility of this like can can the city actually get the housing built on its own not really unfortunately it's just the nature of us being a two-tiered system it's just not in our jurisdiction right just like we have no jurisdiction over let's say national defense um If housing is under the region's jurisdiction, we have to respectfully work with that, right? And and with all due respect, Mike, I I think this decision itself, it it has nothing really to do with the nature of the two-tiered municipality. And and I agree, that's another conversation we can have for sure. Um, But it came up frequently 
the conversations about Cambridge, what it can do, and its staffing levels. And, and I just want to clarify something, if I may. Um, this motion was directed at Cambridge, and every single motion I've ever come up with at Council, and it's been quite a few over the past three years, I have engaged staff, I've worked with staff, and this motion was no different. And staff even helped me write it. Staff helped me edit it. Um, and the whole point of this motion was derived so that it, it could get to the region very quickly and easily. And staff was very confident it could. And they reassured myself and several other members of council that uh, this wasn't a problem. This wasn't a burden on their workload because all this was was advice to take a first step and to reach out to the region and start that conversation. Um, so I will be, as a councillor, I'm still going to reach out to the region and say, hey, unfortunately, this didn't work in Cambridge, but I think this idea could work in the region of Waterloo. So maybe there's another viable location. And if it helps people, if it starts somewhere else, I don't care if it's Kitchener or Waterloo, um, I think it can work and help a lot of people. And I look forward to hopefully seeing it in Cambridge one day. Um, but it, it was going as far as, I mean, even Toronto, uh, CFRB 1010 yesterday was talking about that that innovative housing project in Cambridge so it's piqued a lot of interest, and I think regardless of whether it's Cambridge or the region or whomever, um, it's got potential. People are excited about it, um, and I'm excited to see where it goes. I'll do whatever I can to help it. So I think you've alluded to then next steps for you because you've said several times this morning, Scott, that you remain inspired by the feedback that you received on the road to Tuesday's meeting, and despite the fact the motion was defeated in that 5-4 vote, uh, you're going to keep working on this. So what does that look like for you? Well, unfortunately, there's nothing that Cambridge Council can really do anymore. I mean, one of my colleagues could maybe move to uh, have a motion to rescind. It's put back on the floor. Um, I'm not going to personally explore that option, um, but I can still use, under my own capacity, to reach out to colleagues at the region. I'll be doing that. Reach out to um, our MPPs. Uh, reach out to members of the federal government. And just see if, hey, maybe this is worth exploring because of, again, the tremendous variety of different experts, researchers, practitioners that have looked at this and said, this is absolutely worth pursuing for a whole host of reasons. Everything from benefiting the environment to providing local businesses with more customers to boosting the livability and walkability of downtown cores to the bottom line, which is providing more affordable housing for people that need it. And that's an essential point. I mean, I don't know if it came up at council, but one of the, the delegates, um, Daniel, was a pastor. Uh, and he was saying, hey, this is affordable housing isn't like a car on cinder blocks and sketchy people walking around. Affordable housing is like two new teachers, right? Affordable housing is needed by tradespeople, by young professionals. That's how crazy the housing market is. And now we're seeing people that work in Cambridge having to buy housing way out in Listowel and drive in simply because there's nothing that's affordable. So I think regardless of where the idea comes from or who does it first, uh, I'm hopeful it can be implemented on a, a wider scale in the future and it will be more commonplace. And some of those questions my colleagues raised will hopefully be answered, uh, whether it's by Cambridge staff or staff somewhere else. Um, I just hope that someone picks this up because I think it will help a lot of people. I think it's a really cool idea. Um, at least, I guess, we've started the conversation in a pretty meaningful way, so it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. Uh, Scott, once again, thanks for making time for the show this morning, and very best of the holidays to you and the family. Thanks so much, Mike. Appreciate the conversation. Uh, Merry Christmas and happy holidays to you and uh, all your listeners. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. Scott Hamilton is the Ward 7 Councillor in Cambridge. 5-4 against. Those against the idea 
of putting, well, even just exploring the concept and the feasibility of building housing over existing parking lots in Cambridge. Uh, Mayor Jan Liggett voted against councillors uh, Mike Devine, Nicholas Ermetta, uh, Adam Cooper, and Helen Schwery, the newest councillor. Those were the councillors opposed to even just having the feasibility study done. And you heard Councillor Hamilton just say he had spoken with staff even prior to bringing the motion forward and had an understanding that they had room on their plates, they had the capacity to generate this report for Council's consideration. But no, those five, uh, Liggett, Devine, Ermetta, Cooper, Schwery, said, we're not doing this. Uh, Councillors Roberts, Sherry Roberts, Corey Kimson, Ross Earnshaw, and Scott Hamilton said, yay, let's try this. So there's your 5-4 vote or your 4-5 loss, if you will. And there are a couple of things that come from this with to me. Like the idea that this shouldn't be the purview of the city and that nonprofits or churches should lead the way. No, thank you. I mean, they should, they can absolutely be partners, but I think municipalities have a, a real opportunity here to be leaders. That came up. The idea that staff didn't have the capacity to do the work came up. I That doesn't wash with me one little bit. I, I'm still a little bit confused about Councillor Mike Devine's comments around any damage to the parking lot and who's going to pay for that. Well, just so you know, Cambridge residents, you've already paid for the parking lot because it's the city owns it. And so if that parking lot ever gets repaved or even just repainted, you're paying for that. So I, I really don't understand this idea of, oh, heaven forbid, you know, when you're building this housing, something happens to the precious parking lot and who has to pay for it. The, you as a Cambridge resident, you've already paid for the land. You continue to pay for the upkeep of the parking lot. This could have put some more affordable housing on top of it. And then, of course, there's the whole issue, and I brought it up yesterday, and I called it the dirty little secret, but I I worry a little bit. Like, I, I, the region has been a great partner. We, we've seen some great projects. I mentioned yesterday the, the YW, for example, project on Blockline Road in Kitchener. Kitchener puts up the land. YWKW operates the affordable supportive housing, and it's a regional initiative that gets some funding federally as well. But... That was the region's ultimately project. They've got the banner over top of it. I don't care who gets credit. I just, I wonder if we're making it a little more difficult than it needs to be for cities to act on their own, as opposed to kind of asking permission to mom and dad. And and I feel like what we end up with is a situation where we have so many people and they're all responsible for things. So nobody does anything. As a result, and and I'm a little bit frustrated by that. I I think it might just be one of the reasons we haven't heard anything substantive on the Build Now initiative yet. It was a great idea. It's been endorsed at regional council, but where's the first plot of land? Where's a shovel in the ground? I think we get bogged down in the bureaucracy of our two-tier municipality, but I'm hoping our next phone caller can help out with that because he's a regional councillor and a friend of the program. Rob Deutschman, good morning. Yeah, Michael, uh, I hear you, but I'm not even going there. The answer is absolutely not. Are you sure? Issue. Uh, yeah, I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to dive into that. I just want to talk about. But I'm right. You don't want to d- wait. Hang on a second. Now, I'm. No, I'm making the correct, point, Michael. You're absolutely wrong. Well, explain. On that point. Explain how. 
Explain how asking mom and dad for permission doesn't slow down the process. Please. Who's Tell mom and dad? The region's not mom and dad. It is in this case because the region's responsible for affordable housing. I didn't hear the region being an issue for Cambridge not going forward to look at this issue. Okay, that's all Scott Hamilton was asking for. Well, I know that, Rob. But forward. so don't throw the region into this. Hang I'm on, but, about, but I'm here if, to talk about a great initiative. You're ignoring Scott the Hamilton. elephant in the room, Rob. No, no, you're creating. You're I'm not. I'm telling the, the truth, room. Robert. You, you've got come a, on. You've got a pump, and you're inflating, and you're creating an elephant in the room. There's I'm no not in the room. It, oh goodness Michael, gracious me! You okay, know I'm this because you're on the count, Rob. I know you are being disingenuous, sir. Oh, absolutely not. Look, Michael, I'm coming on your show to talk about Scott Hamilton's great initiative. It is a great and initiative, but... And I am stunned that the... So you, you're coming on the show to piss on Cambridge Council is what you're doing. What? Well, oh, my gosh, Michael, don't say that. Well, That's why not? Well, what no, else? I, I am saying that I'm surprised that they wouldn't go forward. Fine, but even if, if they did... my mouth, though, Michael, that is not... That's but, not Rob, even if they... Okay, so you want to come you on and say you're, you're surprised... I get it. You shouldn't use that kind of language. You're surprised okay. that they, they I, didn't move forward yeah. with this. Okay, great. Yeah. So you're coming on here to, to talk about how Cambridge Council missed an opportunity. Fine. I, but even I'm if they took to... the opportunity, Rob, they have to ask you and your colleagues at the region for permission. You okay, have to get involved. One step at a time, Michael. One step at a time. Let's first get Cambridge or one of the area municipalities to say... Let's go forward and look at these opportunities. It's a great idea. I love the idea. Of course you do. Everybody loves the idea. Fantastic idea. So we just need one of the area municipalities to say, yeah, let's go look at our parking lots and see what we can do. Okay, so Rob. That's a great idea. Yes, it is. You're throwing in your two-tier. I am, because it's true. But there, no, it's false. Okay, it's Rob, a false, it's a red herring. Gosh darn it, it's not though. Like, I, you, oh, why are you protecting your fiefdom? Stop I'm not it! Fiefdom? I'm not protecting okay. anything. Rob, <laughs> let's let's anything. let's let's start with what we agree with. This is a great idea, right? Yeah. Okay. And you think it's too bad Cambridge didn't move forward. We agree again. Right. Okay. So let's say. You, you, oh, hold on one step back though. You use some terminology that you're saying I said. It was not a nice word, and I think you should apologize for that. Saying piss on the radio? Yeah, I'm sorry for I, saying I, piss on the radio. Saying, you're saying I'm, I'm doing that, and I think that is, that is not. I'm not doing that. They're, they're, look, at they, they looked at it. They, they discussed it, and they're entitled to vote how they want to vote. But I am not doing what you just said on anyone, and I think you should apologize for that. I'm sorry for saying piss. Okay. Okay. So okay. here's the thing. So then Cambridge, let's say they did say yes to exploring this idea. I'd so, be like, I'd be head over heels. Exactly. But hang on now, Rob. Now you got to work with me here, okay? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So we're going to, let's just say they, they can do the report in three months. So by March of 2024, okay. Cambridge comes back and says, this is great. Right. Okay. Then that triggers what? Coming to mom and dad for permission at the region. No. Yes. No, no. no. See, so why can't... It's not, well, it's not coming... No, no, Michael, you're looking at it all wrong. It's working collaboratively to take the next steps. We're, yeah, but... We're partners. What are we doing we're in the partners. first three months? We're waiting for Cambridge, the city, to prepare a report. Then what we're happens? To prepare a report. That's the way it goes. Look at... I know uh, that, but then why can't the city just act? That's what yeah. I mean. Why can't they what? Why can't the city... The city's going to prepare the report... Yeah. And then the city should just be able to go and do it. I think they probably could. I mean, we have to examine that. I, I don't think. Yeah, we have to examine that because mom and dad need to give their blessing. <laughs> Michael, Robert, mom and dad, you're being. You're, no, you're I'm being, telling the truth, and you're not, sir. You are no, not no, telling no. the truth. 
Well, first of all, I don't know all the answers to everything. That's the truth. Yeah, because there's too much bureaucracy in the way, Rob. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No, look at we administer affordable housing, and we do a great job, and we and it's a it's a, a humongous task that we're taking on. But if there's opportunities to expand housing in the region, we're partners in all of that. I get it, but why yeah. then? Why does the city have to do a report first and then get the region involved? You see the time that's lost the region, there. No, no, no. Hold on. The region, <laughs> the region. It's it's easy enough to say, hey, region, let's work with the city as they're developing their report. They can all work together. This is not a problem. We've worked together on lots of things it's not an issue absolutely not an issue okay the, you know the i issue, disagree here's vehemently something you. here's something i'll throw out okay uh my friend donna reed would have supported this project wholeheartedly so now are you throwing shade at the new ward one counselor i'm not again why do you throw these i'm asking a question i'm asking a question it's interesting to see how how timing of things occurs, right? <laughs> and uh, you get different views around the horseshoe. Everyone's entitled to their views. I respect everybody's views. In, in at the region, we have people that are right, center, left, and we all work together collaboratively. But I'm just pointing out how things would have been different uh, in that situation. So it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of it's not done yet. I mean, uh, I'm going to reach out to Scott Hamilton. He can certainly we can certainly continue to work on this project and, and engage people in the community to continue to work on this idea. It's not dead. It's not dead at all. And I'm uh, actually I reached out to Scott earlier and I was told he was on the show. So I, I quickly listened in uh, to the show and I wanted to jump on and just say that uh, I think it's a great initiative. And I think we should continue to work on it. I'm going to reach out to Scott to continue to work on it because we need new and innovative ideas. We need to explore these. Scott Davey introduced a a motion about a year ago to have city of Kitchener staff look at ways that they can deal with the rental displacement issue. And they came out with an excellent report uh, recently. So you can do things. Staff can take their time. Oh, my gosh. Okay, Rob, I'm so late. I got to go to the news. But thank you for calling. Okay. Right, bye. Bye. That like talk about taking a 180. Yes, they can. Cities can do stuff about rental bylaws. Sure, but they, they need permission to for affordable housing. And I I'm so disappointed in that. I'm so and no, you're not throwing shade at Cambridge Council. You're not throwing shade at at the Ward One, the new Ward One Councilor. I see it differently. I heard it differently. But hey. I, I guess I had different intentions or I experienced it differently. I don't know. Oh, I'm frustrated now. This is the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570. Oh, well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Look, I just get, I get really frustrated when I have conversations with people who won't admit we are overgoverned. We really are. I'm sorry, we are. And we have a bloated bureaucracy that sometimes, not all the time, we, we do a pretty damn good job around here. We do. But sometimes... We get in our own way, and I, I really believe that as, as much good thing, as much good work as we've done on affordable housing, for example, we could be doing even more if we could, we could certainly be doing it faster. Without question, we could be doing it faster. And I get, I get frustrated when you try to tell me that I'm wrong on that, because I really don't think I am. But maybe we'll find out in 2024. Nonetheless, we, we're late for news. And then a conversation coming up that I know you're going to want to be a part of because I'm getting a lot of traction online already. Arts funding in the region. It should be core funding, right? When you cut discretionary spending, you cut arts funding. The CEO of the museum in downtown Kitchener here to take your calls next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. 
So earlier this week, I was emailing with our next guest who sits directly across from me now in studio. And he said, hey, I want to come on the show, but not just to talk about the cut to arts funding and specifically the impact on the organization that he leads. But I want to take calls from people. Let's have a conversation. I said, okay, if you want to put on your tin suit and come into the studio, you can do that. So phone lines remain open. And I think it's going to be an interesting conversation with David Marskell, who is the CEO of the museum in downtown Kitchener. Good morning, first and foremost. Good morning and best of the season to you. And to you as well, sir. It's been it's been a bit of a tough go since the budget was finalized and there was a reduction in quote unquote discretionary spending. I'll get to that in a moment, but what's the impact being on the museum? Well, it has not been a good impact. It's uh, certainly shaken the young staff there. They don't know at very uncertain time globally. Now it's come right down to us being cut three hundred thousand um, dollars mid year, um, and uh, so that part is very important to me to to take care of them and and to tell them we're on our feet and we're going to keep going. Um, but the impact we don't know. We're we're working through um, what it actually means. Do we cut days? Do we cut hours? <clears throat> Excuse me. Do we stop bringing in the larger uh, world-class exhibits like Andy Warhol and Rolling Stones and that type of thing. Um, so we're, we're going through that now. They, they're coming back in two months, council is, uh, to review a report to see how the final, um, the final envelope that was shared by two people, two organizations, the, the symphony and ourselves, they reduced that by 50% and then 10% and then added three groups. So we'll find out soon how we how we fare on that, if it's equal or, or some other way. Is this a continuation, David, of a decline in municipal support for arts and culture organizations? For us, definitely. Um, the money we received from the, the region, 385000 is what we received from the region in 2017. So an accumulation against uh, inflation, that's a loss of $90,000 right there. And now this huge cut on top of it. Um, City of Kitchener has given some incremental um, increases along the way, and uh, the City of Waterloo tends to do um, the life of council, sort of here's the money you're going to get for the next four years. Uh, but this uh, this is the big one for sure, coming from the region. It's curious to me as well, David, because there there was money that had existed to support, for example, the KW Symphony. Obviously, without a KW Symphony right now, that money just, what, disappeared? Didn't get reallocated? Yeah, I, I, that, that was the first um, inkling that something not good was about to happen. And I don't know why they wouldn't leave that in the Arts and Culture Fund, or like envelope, if you will. Um, because this cut represents, I think it's almost um, three or $400,000 or more across the board. Like all arts groups that were funded by the region will now be cut by 10%. Um, so having have left that money there that was in there and rather having it viewed as discretionary but more of a line item to help arts and cultures, that's what great cities do. They, they need arts and culture. They have fantastic kindergarten to grade 12. They have great post-secondary education systems and ecosystems. They have current infrastructure and they have flourishing arts and culture supported by a great culinary uh, sector. And that's not discretionary. That's essential and that's what we should be doing i believe in this community i was going to ask that very question whether or not you believed that 
arts and culture funding was discretionary. Clearly, you've already answered that, and I just want to echo by saying I agree wholeheartedly. I think this is something that should be funded as a public good. But I will share with you, because I mentioned before the news update that I'd been getting some traction on this online, letting people know that you were going to be on the show today to have this conversation. And Christina says, defund them all and let the people decide where their hard-earned money goes. Let's see what survives. I'm sure you've heard this argument before, right? Why should it be propped up? Just create great programming and the people will come through the door. How do we respond? Uh, There will be no more arts and culture. It'll be as simple as that. I mean, we open to a flawed financial model. The Waterloo Region Children's Museum should never have opened at $45,000 when it opened 20 years ago. And that, uh, that represents about a third of our heating bill. So for arts and culture, um, for us to um, do as your, your, the person who's written to you uh, would like, we would have to have a gate of $128 a person or some such thing. If that's what they want for their children, if that's what they want for a smart community, I don't agree with them. And it dangerously puts us close to a bedroom community. So people go to uh, Toronto for their arts and culture, get the two-way all-day trains going, and that solves this person's uh, issue. Let's just close it all down here and go to Toronto. Right. So why, David, is funding of the arts a public good? Why is this not discretionary spending? What does our funding get us? The funding begins with a smart community. The funding allows us to, in the case of the museum, it allows us to nurture the minds of very, very young children. We have a taught spot for under three years old. We have a 55 and better program where People that age can get in for free on Thursday and learn and discuss and share their knowledge. We have numerous uh, diversity um, uh, programs from the Coalition of Muslim Women annually and and the Refugee Arts Show annually. Um, We have feature countries and we share the similarities of other cultures with our culture. Like these are really fundamentally important things. We have experiences that people... Um, would arguably pay a lot more for in any other city, like our our new iPool, which is an immersive digital experience that's created by an indigenous group. Wonderful, wonderful experience. There's just so much it it offers um, for the students, for the tens of thousands of students that come to visit, and for the tourism, we bring 40% of our attendance from outside. What do you get for your money? Hotels that are full, restaurants that are busy. We have 100,000 people come downtown Kitchener. Remove that from the from the landscape, and what happens to the BIA and the and the businesses downtown? There's a lot of economic, and social benefit from the arts. Were you in any way caught off guard or unawares by what happened with the regional budget and the funding cut that you received? Hundred percent. Yeah, there was not a lot of information shared with us, and I think I think all of the count. I this is my opinion. I believe most of the councillors were unaware. And as that day unfolded, Doug Craig spoke to it and said, you're not understanding this. We need to add 900000 not cut this. And I thought, man, he's losing it. And then I started was listening to it and, and understanding what he was saying. He figured it out right away. Barry was close. Barry, the mayor of Kitchener, he was saying, well, didn't we already take 385000 out regarding the symphony? And that's a 50% cut to the envelope that, that, that we were in. Um, I, I, did not, I did not anticipate this at all. And um, it represents 12% of our operating budget at a time when inflation is, uh, our costs are going up in extreme amounts. 
and um, it's going to cripple us for sure. Okay, so where do we go from here, I think, is a big question. And we will continue to explore that with David Marscal, the CEO of the museum in downtown Kitchener. And you are welcome to be a part of the conversation. 519-570-2545, star 570, and 1-800-570-5715. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. For Stockyards Brewing, it also takes some extra space. They've now moved to their new retail store in St. Jacobs. The passion of the hardworking community and 35 years of brewing experience goes into every can at Stockyards Brewing. Proud winner at the Ontario Brewing and the Canadian Brewing Awards. Visit Stockyards' new retail store in St. Jacobs or look for Stockyards Beer in your local LCBO or beer store. Visit StockyardsBeverage.co. Embrace a new era of three-row luxury seating at Hefner Lexus with the 2024 TX350 SUV. Featuring a massive 14-inch display and standard Lexus Safety System 3.0. Comfort and performance meet with the aerodynamic design powered by a 2.4-liter turbocharged powertrain engine with hybrid option. Indulge in the new 2024 Lexus TX350 starting at $72,035.50. Hefner Lexus. Corner of King and Fairway, Kitchener. Hefner.ca. On a recent Ask the Experts show, Faisal Suziwala of REMAX Twin City Realty spoke about the first home savings account and the home buyer's plan. You know, for young people, the first home savings account, the FHSA, yeah. you can use it to save up to $40,000 for your first home. You can contribute tax-free up to 15 years, and the unused contribution room can be carried over to the next year up to a maximum of $8,000. In addition to... Um, the FHSA, which is actually uh, complements the home buyer's plan. And the home buyer's plan is a program that allows you to make a withdrawal from your registered RRSP yeah. to buy or build a qualifying home. So th- this is just a second tier to the RRSP program that's been in effect for a long time. You've learned a little. Now learn a lot. Listen to the Faisal Susie Wallace Show on the City News 570 audio page. Visit kitchener.citynews.ca. If it matters in Waterloo region, you're going to hear about it right here. We return with more of the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. In studio this morning with David Marskell, the CEO of the museum in downtown Kitchener, a museum that effectively now faces a 12% cut to its funding due to a decision at the regional budget final meeting. A week ago, 519-570-2545, star 570, and 1-800-570-5715 if you'd like to be a part of the conversation. Bill sends an email to Mike at 570news.com. He says, the quality of arts funding in this region is pathetic. David, I don't think you'll disagree with that sentiment. No, and thanks, Dad, for writing in. I (laughs) appreciate that. You know, more than a decade ago... um, What prompted the Creative Enterprise Initiative is these councils, all councils in the region, acknowledged there was a funding gap of $6 million-plus. That was 12 years ago. We've never filled that gap, and it's only gotten larger. We just, it, it's, it, it's broken, and I'm almost glad this has happened because it needs to go to a larger conversation. We need to amalgamate the arts um, sector. We need to, to bring that under one one area, I would love for us to look at a board of governors that are 
people that are not part of any arts group but look for shared resources. It's ludicrous that the siloed arts groups that have come out of this type of funding aren't working together to share volunteer coordinators, IT, cleaning, all sorts of different types of things where we can share. So some of the responsibility to your first person you reference is on us to work together. It's not happening at the staff level. We need somebody above us, a board of governors that looks at that, and, and it could save huge amounts of money. But there needs to be a conversation. It needs to be fixed. It can't just flop on the deck as, as we are left to do. And to your point, we've lost 12% of our operating budget. It's a 75% cut from the region. Clive sends an email as well, and I think he gets to exactly what you just talked about, David, with a more coordinated approach, let's say. And I know Clive also, by the way, is a passionate patron of the arts locally because I see him at many an artistic uh, arts and culture event. So Clive writes to Mike at 570news.com. The arts groups have to come together and work together to promote each other and advertise as a group. The greater community has no idea of what you at the museum or the other arts groups offer. You're all working independently and thus against each other. Does it feel that way inside? I, I agree 100%. I, we, I, we don't, and I'm only speaking for the museum, have enough money to get the message out. We've got a fantastic hockey exhibition. It should be working in this community, and it's not achieving what I thought it would. We don't have enough marketing dollars to be able to carry that. And perhaps tourism plays a part in this, the tourism group here. Perhaps the BIA should play a part in this to to bring it together. But the arts groups need these key cultural organizations, need to share resources. And part of that could be designers and, and a common marketing campaign or annual themes where we come together and and. KWAG or somebody can be the engine for a year and we become one of the trains and we follow a theme of X and we all build on that so tourism can bring people here and again get to economic development and so on. I agree with Clive. Was our creative enterprise initiative maybe a missed opportunity then, David? 100%. Yeah. It, it, it really was. There was a lot of skepticism. It, um, it was a large entity to begin with. Uh, the people that began it were well-meaning and, and did the right thing to get it through council and, and get this funding. This is where a lot of this funding began for the museum and, and others at the time. I don't know what, what, what went wrong. I think part of it, it was sort of a grassroots approach, taking care of the artists and, and, uh, and musicians and actors and, and that type of thing. In hindsight, I think Possibly, if you can take care of those key cultural organizations, we are a stage for all of those people. We have all of those musicians and actors and and um, uh, artists and so on coming to the museum a- as the other uh, key cultural organizations. So perhaps that was a flaw, but it was a huge effort and it was the right effort. And we need to get back at it. Okay, let's go to the phones and hear from uh, one of our listeners on this. Rory is with us this morning. Good morning, Rory. Hey, good morning, my friend. How are things? Excellent, thank you. How about yourself? Fantastic. Good. Um, you know, I, I just want to make a couple of comments about the museum uh, because, as uh, as a as a father of uh, three boys, you know, we're always looking at activities to keep to keep them occupied, and you know, we've we've found a gem with the museum. Um, you know, from our perspective, we find it to be quite affordable. Uh, in terms of in terms of the cost, you know, and and when you look at uh, 
different uh, places in Toronto. That's that's not always the case. Uh, the iPool exhibit. I mean, our kids just absolutely love it. I think they could probably spend the entire day just in that exhibit alone. It's 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 unbelievable. And you know, talk about an amazing resource for schools. Um, you know, I, I think short-sighted by the region, unfortunately. And of course, you know, I know Rob is listening uh, because he just called in. Maybe if we wrapped up those ion trains with some advertising, <laughs> we'd have some extra cash for our good friends at the museum. So, you know, uh, yeah, unfortunate. And hopefully there'll be a different tune uh, in the next budget. But certainly, you know, support the museum, folks. Get out there, get a membership, and uh, let's, 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 show our, uh, let's show our love for such a fantastic organization. Thanks, Rory. Appreciate the call. Everybody's throwing shade around today, but I appreciate the dig at the uh, advertising wraps that won't go on trains. But nonetheless, Rory alludes to something you said earlier, David, that if we don't offer it here, we risk becoming a bedroom community where people go elsewhere to get it. And goodness gracious, as somebody that occasionally and very occasionally now drives into or makes the trip somehow into Toronto... It, it ain't worth it. Like, we should make sure that these opportunities remain in this community. Who wants to do that and pay those prices and waste the time getting there? Yeah. And and the gas and the expense and so on is, is uh, yeah, it's, it doesn't make any sense. And we have it here. We, we just need to take it from a tin can of sustainability tied to our ankle to flourishing. And not only this isn't just about give us the money back, please. This is about we need actually, we need almost double the money to be sustainable. And for $2 a household, if I've done my math correctly, we could make the museum free for all people to come to the museum. That's what a smart, great city would do is to make those types of initiatives free. KWAG's free, clay and glass is free. That's fantastic. It's a different funding model. But let, let's, let's go way beyond just give the museum back what it just lost. We need to go way up with this conversation. So how do we get here, David? If we had a good idea that just didn't get off the ground with creative enterprise, do we resurrect that or something like it? Do we need advocates on regional council? Because the, the, the motion to cut discretionary spending by 10% came from a brand new councillor. Where do we go from here? How do we get to this place where you think we need to be? Yeah, and the emotion was to cut 20% originally. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I I think there's a number of different uh, parts that need to get going. I think councils need to be on side that arts matter. First of all, do they get that? Do they understand that? Because if they don't and they're not going to support it with dollars, then there's no point in wasting anybody's time. The... the um, the notion of having this board of governors is a term I've been using at a higher level to look for efficiencies, um, I think is a very good one. And perhaps some former mayors or people smarter than I could come together three or four times a year just to get that going and to understand it. Um, there's got to be a huge amounts of savings there. And that that's making the organizations work together. The municipalities have the carrot and the stick. Don't give us funding unless we amalgamate some backroom opportunities, whether it's IT or simple things. Show that we're working. We need so there's an onus on us too. So, I think a board of governors. I think I think the organizations themselves, and I think the politicians have to actually believe that arts and culture makes a great city. And 
what happens if it's not here? What happens if the museum isn't here in a year? Like, does anybody care? Is anybody listening? Is that Pink Floyd? It is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does, I mean, the, the symphony's gone, and now we're just busy with Christmas and so on, and and it's gone. And if the museum's gone in a year, will anybody care? So first off, we need the politicians to care. And if I may, I cared so much that I brought my parents fund my the legacy of a charity they began. I, I brought it to this community in this museum, $1 million. Didn't get a tax receipt, didn't get anything out of it. I believe in this community, in the museum, and I wish the politician believed in me in this museum. I hope this reaches receptive ears, and you're giving me ideas, David. We'll keep this in touch because I agree with you wholeheartedly. We are virtually a wasteland without the arts and culture opportunities in our own community, and maybe we need to reinforce that through this show more, so we'll try to find ways to do that. But always good to see you. Thanks for your passion for the arts and for making time for the show. Best of the season to everybody. Thank you. The museum.ca. We take cash, Bitcoin, checks, everything. <laughs> Beer bottles. We'll take them too. The museum.ca. David Marskell, it's CEO. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. season for uplifting stories and as we head into the holiday season in fact we are here on our show today the final we will be here for before christmas and then uh, we won't be back until the early part of the new year so what better christmas story to tell than the one that allowed a mom to make sure that she had her first christmas with her new baby nikki bakes joins the program to share her story Nikki, thank you so much for making the time, and good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you take us back to October the 6th, 2021? What happened to you that day? Um, It was a pretty normal day from the beginning part of the day, but um, in the evening after dinner, I was watching TV on the couch after the kitchen was cleaned with my husband, and I started to have a little bit of, like, pressure in my chest and started to have a little bit of, like, I don't want to say back pain, but like discomfort, thinking like, oh, maybe I should go for a massage. Um, and it started to escalate a little bit. And my husband, I said I was fine. Like it's probably just from carrying the diaper bag around or whatever. But my husband decided to call an ambulance. Thankfully, he did about five or six minutes after they arrived. Um, I was in the back of the ambulance, which was all normal until my heart stopped for about nine minutes. And I was taken to St. Mary's from where we live in Elmira. Uh, I'm sorry, but that that made me pause for a moment. Your heart yeah. stopped for nine minutes, Nikki. Yeah. So I received CPR in the back of the ambulance on the way to um, St. Mary's uh, Hospital. And, yeah, they worked on me in the back of the ambulance. And then when we got to St. Mary's, um, the doctors kind of took over and provided care. But thankfully, they got me back through the CPR. 
But yeah, it was a very scary um, and unexpected. Like I'm a healthy thirty-something uh, mom and with no health issues prior to that moment, so it was very surprising. Jumping, Jiminy! That one, that one hits really. Like I can't even imagine nine minutes. This is uh, referred to as a spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD heart attack. Did you know anything about this prior, Nikki? No, I had never heard anything about it. Um, like I said, it largely targets it targets men as well, but it largely targets uh, healthy women. And um, in my case, it was postpartum related. So because I had had a baby, um, the hormones kind of weakened my arteries and that caused a tear. And the tear acted as a flap that blocked blood flow to my heart, whereas normal heart attacks are like a buildup of plaque over time and sometimes lifestyle related. But um, mine was like the actual artery had a little flap that caused the blockage. So it was very, very, that's why it's spontaneous, like unexpected. And what was it that as you look back on this experience, Nikki, that allowed you to be here, allowed us to be having this conversation today? Well, thankfully, the care I received, I attest it to three things. My husband calling 911, the care of the paramedics, and in large part, the care I received at St. Mary's Hospital. Um, I uh, I don't think I would be here without them, and I received such great care. I'm hoping um, that others in the community continue to receive that care in the future, too. I know they serve about 1.4 million people across Ontario. And this fall, I actually participated in the Hike for Heart in September and um, was really surprised to learn that uh, the cost of replacing equipment in the cardiac unit um, is covered 100% by donations. So, yeah, I was I was really, really surprised to learn all that. Yeah, it's one of the things that uh, also gave me pause when I began to learn more because we think about... Uh, hospitals being funded by provincial health care dollars, but that's just for the operation. We don't think about the equipment and stuff. And then you nailed it, Nikki. The hospital has to do so much work in fundraising to keep that necessary equipment functioning, to get the new stuff, etc. You had mentioned postpartum earlier, too. You, your little boy was four months old when this happened to you back in 2021. So, and this is October of 21, so Halloween's coming, Christmas is coming. And, I mean, how do you feel at this time of year, thinking back on two years ago, and the fact that you almost didn't make it to those holidays and those milestones with your newborn? Yeah, it's it's definitely emotional, and it um, definitely brings up a lot of feelings of gratitude. I'm grateful for the care I got provided at St. Mary's. I'm grateful for my family and my uh, recovery and the recovery that I had through the cardiac rehab program. So, yeah, it's 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 scary to think about, but it's also I'm very grateful. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't have gotten to experience my first Christmas with my son, his first birthday, my first Mother's Day. So, I, it's hard to imagine how things would be different had it not been for the recovery and the, the care that I received. How are you feeling today? I feel great. I'm. Uh, I would say I have life, I'd say 95% as normal before the uh, SCAD heart attack happened. Um, I went through a recovery uh, process. I went through the cardiac rehab program. Um, I'm on some medications, which sometimes they kind of suck, but like in the scheme of things, it's much <laughs> better than the alternative. So I, can, I have no complaints. 
I'm glad you mentioned that cardiac rehabilitation program because it's something else that I've learned more about in recent years. And it just goes to show, like you mentioned the three things that helped you get through this, which was your husband calling 911, the paramedics that treated you en route to the hospital, and then the care, of course, in the hospital. But that care carries over, if you will, into this cardiac rehabilitation program as well. Can you share some of your experience through that part of your recovery? Yeah, certainly. Um, So that part has been, I would say, unexpected because you think you go to the hospital, you treat an issue, and then you get sent home. But really, the relationship and the care that I've had with St. Mary's is ongoing. It's probably going to be, I'm hoping, lifelong and a very long life. Um, And it's something that just continues into my day-to-day. So they have an awesome facility for cardiac rehab. That, so their cardiac rehab extends beyond the hospital. They have a center, I think it's in the boardwalk, and uh, various doctors and cardiologists. And I have a wonderful cardiologist that's provided through uh, St. Mary's uh, that I will see probably for, I'm hoping, for the rest of my life. I think it's great that you're here to share the story today. I hope you have a, a wonderful holiday season, and, and thank you very much for sharing this story, Nikki. It's important for folks to hear, you know, the kind of great work that gets done at our local hospitals and the impact it has on people's lives. So thank you very much. Thank you. And it's so important that to recognize that there is this great facility and there is such need in the hospital um, and that they need all the donations that they can get to make sure that our community continues to get the great care that we need. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Well said. Merry Christmas, Nikki. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Nikki Bakes joining us uh, two, just over two years ago. She suffered a SCAD heart attack, a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. And had it not been for her husband's insistence on calling 911, the excellent work of the paramedics as she came from her home in Woolwich Township, about 20 kilometers away from St. Mary's Hospital, in an ambulance, the work being done en route. And then, of course, the care she receives, not just in the moment of the emergency at St. Mary's, but that cardiac rehabilitation program, too. You heard Nikki talk about the relationship that continues to exist uh, in in the months and, and years after. It's just, it, it's a part of the continuum, if you will. And, and as we touched on, it, and it was something that I had to learn about and I've become more aware of. Hospitals, we just think about as being funded by our provincial health dollars, which they are operationally. But when it comes to the equipment in those hospitals, keeping it functioning, upgrading it with the newest stuff and the latest and greatest, well, hospitals fundraise for things like that. And I'll remind you again, because I've shared the story before, you heard Nikki talk about how many people, 1.8 million, we're, we're getting close to that 2 million mark uh, in terms of population served in the catchment area, if you will, of just the cardiac center at St. Mary's Hospital. A friend of mine who I work with in the Ontario Hockey League, well, he retired now, that guy from his Ontario Hockey League work. But nonetheless, in Owen Sound, the great Freddie Wallace, when he had heart issues, where did he end up? Right here at our hospital, St. Mary's in Kitchener. Because the coverage area for St. Mary's goes right up into Gray and Bruce County, up onto the Bruce Peninsula and Tobermory, etc. When I was a kid, my grandfather, my mom's dad, died of a heart attack. 
And so for me, as a kid, I always thought that a heart attack means that's it, lights out, see you later. And of course, I've come to realize over the years that that is not the case anymore. It it may have been the case 40 plus years ago when I lost my grandfather, but we have made so many advancements and the care has come so far in those decades. I was just talking to a fellow the other week that talked about the valve he had replaced in his heart. And I mean, he he's living a life as normal as any other. I've shared with you before, both of my parents ended up at St. Mary's in the same year to get stents put in. And this is the sort of thing where you're almost in and right out again. It, it's not weeks or months, it's you know, days, and you can get the necessary treatment and you're on your way. And then, of course, you've got that cardiac rehabilitation program that's a part of everything, too. Just something to keep in mind. These stories are pretty impactful. And if you go to supportstmarys.ca, you can help ensure that we continue providing this care. It's a world leader. It's highly regarded and world-renowned for a reason, the cardiac care at St. Mary's Hospital right here in Kitchener. Supportstmarys.ca is the website if you'd like to make a contribution as we head into the holidays. We're going to take a quick break, come back with more on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. I don't know, we're not even two hours into the show, and it may already be time for a mea culpa. I remember Paul called in first thing this morning and said, it depends on whether or not you say or do something stupid, which will determine whether or not I have to call back. Uh, I may have, I may have done that already, and it's not even... 11 o'clock. Talk more about it in just a second. But I did want to share this email from Danielle about our previous segment just now uh, with Nikki Bakes, who shared the story, her very personal story of her SCAD heart attack, the care she received and the recovery that she is now fully through, thanks to St. Mary's Hospital. Danielle's email to Mike at 570news.com reads, I'm so happy to hear the positive outcome for Nikki. My father also received care for a double bypass and valve replacement. It's one of the greatest hospitals in Canada, not just the region. Danielle, I'm with you. I'm just glad with the issues with code reds and offload delays that Nikki was able to get to the hospital in time. Thanks for sharing her story. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Danielle. And I really do appreciate the note. I also received a note from Jay, uh, who writes to Mike at 570news.com. I'm guessing the Deutschman Law ad revenue might be in jeopardy. Kidding aside, I joined you earlier in your frustration. I mean, at least acknowledge that the two-tier system causes unnecessary delays due to red tape. I was yelling at my PC while listening to your exchange, LOL. Jay, thanks. Thanks very much, first and foremost, for listening. And... I appreciate your understanding of the issues that we face here in our community and some of the challenges presented by our two-tier municipality. We do, 
we do remarkably well overall, but I, I think there are areas that need some massaging, and, and certainly one of them is around housing and how quickly we can get things done. But I, I don't love the way my conversation with Rob Deutschman went about an hour ago now. Uh, when Look, we had a, a really good conversation with Scott Hamilton, Ward 7 counselor in Cambridge, about his motion that failed at Cambridge Council this week to explore the idea of building housing over municipal parking lots. All the motion was asking that Cambridge Council endorse was staff preparing a report to look at the feasibility. I mean, it's not asking a whole lot, and for whatever reason, Cambridge Council shot it down. But I'll leave that over there. Then I expressed, again some of my concern with even if Cambridge had been able and and said, yes, this is feasible, if it's an affordable housing project, the region is responsible for affordable housing. So the partnership has to happen. And it usually does. Like, it it works well. But I, I just, I feel very strongly that we are losing valuable time in the creation of that housing while we wait for all of the partners to get on board. And I also received an email, and I'll I'll leave the name off of it because I don't believe I was authorized to share it in this way, but from somebody inside the region that would know, okay? And, And he quite correctly points out in his email, if everyone agrees we are in a housing crisis, but then says they don't have a role... We can't be surprised why we're in a housing crisis. We all have a responsibility for affordable housing. And I agree with that. But one of the challenges I have is actually the opposite because everybody has a responsibility for affordable housing. It's almost like nobody does anything. Well, you've got responsibility for it, so I'm just going wait to wait for you to exercise your responsibility, right? Anyway, I I wish the conversation with Rob Deutschman hadn't gone the way that it did. Uh, I I don't think, I I know, in fact, for certain that he's not the kind of guy that's going to remove ad revenue from the radio station. That's not why he's a counselor. That's not why he's uh, a partner of this radio station and this program. None of that. Uh, Rob understands that there are different points of view, and sometimes we passionately express those different points of view. So I I wish it had gone differently. I mean, it's the holiday time, and I didn't come to work today. In fact, if I'm being honest with you, I came to work today to kind of cruise into holiday time, okay? (laughs) But here we are, and I just, I'm, I'm so passionate about two things. First, one is how we go about meeting head on this crisis that we're in when it comes to housing. Like, we, we need, I, I need to see, a lot more in the way of tangible steps. And again, I'll, I'll make reference to that awesome Build Now initiative, 10,000 homes for this community by 2030, announced back in the summer. And still, all these months later, not one single announcement of a piece of land yet. Where's the land? Why can't we start? I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated by that. And, and that contributed to the earlier conversation with, with Rob. And, and the other thing, you know, and I'll keep beating this drum as long as I can. We need to get rid of our two-tier system here. We do. Maybe that's a separate, but I'm very passionate about that too. I, I think we function in spite of our structure, not because of it. Nonetheless, one more thing on that point. 
uh, generally. It's, it's certainly connected. And this is around the conversation we had with David Marskell just after 10 o'clock about the reduction in funding for arts and culture. I was really surprised when the motion came forward during budget deliberations at the region to reduce discretionary spending. And then somehow arts and culture funding is discretionary, not core funding, right? Because to me, I'll tell you what is discretionary spending. And if I'm being honest, like I, I, I don't mean to whiz on somebody's effort. I, I'm sure they're proud of what they've created and put together here. But if you want to talk about discretionary spending, I honestly want to know, like to me, that's your travel expenses. That's the kind of food, if any, you serve at meetings, things like that, right? These are discretionary line items that we can work to reduce. I'd like to know what the budget is at Grand River Transit to create really clever animations about a bunny, a stuffed bunny that got left behind on a bus one day or a train, and now they've created this lovely little animated story. Like, you don't make those things for free, just for the record. And not not only that, but they've added a mascot for Grand River Transit. Like, this, this is a cost. This is a line item. That's discretionary spending. Like, why are we spending the money on that? Did, did Grand River Transit need a new, uh, uh, well, not even a new mascot, the, need to have a mascot created? Is that what the high priority is for Grand River Transit? And I received an email asking the very same question. How much revenue will the bunny generate? How about some advertising to generate funds and reduce the tax burden? Like, I just, I don't, I, I don't understand it. If you're a system that's strapped for cash and you don't want to raise fares, I, I'd love to see the budget. What was the budget for creating the animation and then inventing a mascot, which just as an aside is creepy as all get out. Like everybody knows the big money is the creepy thing. So I, <sighs> I'm a little bit taken aback by that. It, in these times that we talk about cutting discretionary spending, we slash funding for arts and culture, but we find money however many thousands, and believe you me, it was thousands, probably north of 10. It's probably in the tens of thousands of dollars. That's what we're going to do. Make little animations about bunnies and then create a mascot. I didn't hear the demand for it, and I don't understand where the the money came from. And if you've got that much money in your budget for discretionary uses, I think you could cut some of that money. All right. I'm feeling pretty grinchy all of a sudden. Maybe it's because, maybe it's because our friends at the Canadian Tax Payers Federation, have found for us the tax changes that we need to be aware of for next year. Get ready for 2024 on your tax bill. We'll talk about it, tell you what you need to be aware of. Coming up on the Mike Farwell Show, this is City News 570.
Well, as we approach the end of the year, we have been sharing with you some of our favorite conversations from the past 12 months, the things that really got us talking. Uh, Just under an hour from now, we are going to uh, revisit the conversation that most got us talking this past year. I don't think there's much argument that it was the biggest story in our community in the past 12 months. That's coming up just after the noon news about an hour from now. But I, I make reference to that because as we approach the end of the year, you know, we revisit some things that maybe we remembered from the year past and, and look ahead to what's coming up in 2024. I feel almost duty bound to do this. And so in this particular instance, don't shoot the messenger necessarily, okay? But we want you to know what you need to be ready for next year when it comes to the taxes that you pay. And Jay Goldberg joins us. He's the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, good morning. Good morning. Okay, so give me the bad news. Come on now. Like what what is it what's the most significant tax change that we're gonna have to be ready for in twenty twenty four? Okay, so starting on January 1st, uh, if you combine the increase in the payroll taxes uh, and you add in the Canada Pension Plan premium going up and employment insurance going up as well, uh, anyone who makes over $73,000 can expect a $507 tax hike just from those three alone. The biggest is the payroll tax hike, which is going up by $347. Uh, Obviously, this is not fun news to hear at the holidays, especially when we know that 50% of families say they're $200 away from not being able to pay their bills. Uh, But that's the reality. We're facing a New Year's tax hike at the the federal level. And again, on average, it'll be $507 next year. All right. An average of $507 effective January 1. Lucky us. The other big issue, and we may very well have a federal election fought over it at some point, Jay, and that is the carbon tax. How do you see that impacting us in 2024? Yeah, that's right. So on April the 1st, uh, alcohol taxes are going to go up, and we can talk about that in a minute, but so is the carbon tax. Uh, The carbon tax is going to go up from $65 a ton to $80 a ton. And what that means for folks at home is that the price of gas is going to go up by 3.3 cents per liter. uh, And it's ultimately we're going to have the carbon tax now at 18 cents a liter starting on the 1st of April. Uh, And obviously that's significantly driving up costs. And as you said, there could be an election fought over it. Uh, And what that would mean is that if we have an election next year after April the 1st, the question that will be at the ballot box is, do you want to scrap the carbon tax and lower gas prices by 18 cents a liter overnight? I suspect that would be a pretty attractive option for some people, for sure. You mentioned the alcohol escalator tax, Jay. It's something that we have spoken to producers about on a number of occasions. And really, when you think about alcohol taxes in general, they make up the, the lion's share of the cost of alcohol Uh, here in Canada. But what do we need to know about the escalator tax next year? Well, first of all, I think we need to note, as you did, that this is an escalator tax. And what that means is that taxes go up automatically. Politicians don't even have to stand up and vote for these increases. Uh, In Parliament, the Trudeau government set this up so that taxes automatically go up every year on alcohol without actually having to have a vote in the House of Commons. Now, Taxes on alcohol are going to go up by 4.7%, which is obviously above the rate of inflation. 
And as you noted, uh, look, the cost of 50% of beer is just taxes. 75% of spirits is just taxes. So, you know, any alcoholic beverage you're buying in this country, over half of the bill is just tax going to the government. And that's only going to grow next year when we see an almost 5% increase in the the tax burden on all forms of alcohol. Are there any other taxes that we need to be aware of that will be introduced or uh, increased next year? So there's the potential for a digital services tax. The federal government has uh, insisted that they're going to implement a digital services tax on companies like Amazon, uh, like Netflix, uh, and they're looking to do that, but they haven't set an exact time next year when they're going to do it. The digital service tax could cost up to $1.2 billion for taxpayers per year. Uh, But again, the Liberals haven't finalized exactly when they want to bring that in. Uh, The other thing to look out for is actually at the provincial level. We've had a 6.4 cents per litre gas tax cut from the Ford government since July 1st of 2022. But that's set to expire on Canada Day if the Ford government doesn't take further action. So... Uh, you know, the, the the dark possibility that we're facing this spring and early summer is the possibility that the carbon tax goes up by 3.3 cents a litre and then the provincial gas tax is up by 6.4 cents a litre and all of a sudden you're tur- you've turned into a 10 cent per litre gas tax hike in very short order. So hopefully the province will continue the gas tax cut. They'll extend it further. Uh, hopefully we can have... Uh, you know, either an election over the carbon tax or uh, the Liberals finally wake up and realize how damaging the carbon tax is to, uh, you know, to livelihoods, to paying to heat your home, for example. It's going to cost $300 uh, this winter just to heat your home with natural gas, the carbon tax bill. And so, again, that will increase as well with a carbon tax going up in April. Next winter, your carbon tax home heating bill will go up from $300 to almost $400. So, you know, there's a lot of taxes coming in the pipeline. There's a lot of not-so-great news, but it's definitely a time for Canadians to really get engaged uh, and make sure that we hold our politicians accountable when they're raising these kind of taxes on us, when we have such a cost-of-living crisis in this country and when so many people are really near the bubble uh, and, and are just barely getting by. I think that's an excellent point, Jay, just to make sure that we are aware and and holding elected officials accountable. Because something that I hear an awful lot on this show is I probably hear as much about the increases to taxes or the amount of taxes we pay as I hear about our concern that these taxes are not being or once they're collected, they're they're not being managed effectively. What, what, where do you land on that issue? Are our taxes being managed effectively, or do you believe there's too much waste? Unfortunately, I think there's absolutely too much waste, and you can look at every level of government. I mean, the federal government and the province of Ontario have, for example, committed $30 billion of taxpayer dollars to Volkswagen and Stellantis to build and subsidize electric car battery plants uh, and electric car plants. And that's $30 billion of taxpayer money given to these two companies that had profits combined last year of $99 billion Canadian. And we're handing over $30 billion. We've got things in Ontario like 
the political welfare system where we, as taxpayers, give out millions of dollars to political parties that they can spend on whatever they want, like lawn signs and attack ads. So it's very frustrating. Another thing that's been particularly frustrating for me is that the Ford government earlier this spring uh, ordered audits for six GTA municipalities uh, when the municipalities were saying that they were short on cash and they needed more provincial support. Well, just a few weeks ago, the provincial government quietly announced that even though they hired Ernst & Young to do these audits, that they were cancelling the audits because they don't want to see the results of the audits. And so I think a lot of taxpayers would love to see uh, an auditor come in to every level of government and every municipality and really give us clear answers about where money is not being well spent. Because, look, I think there's a lot of taxpayers out there who are saying, I'm willing to pay a certain amount of tax if I'm going to get a, a real service out of it. But, you know, runaway spending and runaway taxes can't just be an end in itself. We need to make sure that every dollar government is taking out of our wallets is being spent really well. And quite frankly, uh, that's not the case. With respect, the last thing we might need is another third-party consultant to audit the books. Because, I mean, we we have Auditor General's reports all the time, and for whatever reason, or reports from the Parliamentary Budget Officer, and for whatever reason, the contents of those reports make news for a day or two, and then they just go away again. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's got to be a legislative mechanism, whether whether it's from a new government or this government finally owning up to things both at all levels again the federal government um listening to the parliamentary budget officer the province listening to the fao what's been very frustrating to see is that you know politicians at both levels will see the report and the opposition will take the government to task for you know wasteful spending or or inaccurate financial numbers that the government's putting forward and the governments at both levels the feds and the province will just say you know what the fao's wrong uh, their numbers are off. Uh, they're not looking at all factors. The reality is the FAO and the Parliamentary Budget Officer have been more accurate on fiscal numbers and where things are going and how much tax they're paying and where there is waste than governments ever have been. So it's a very good thing that the PBO and the FAO were set up at both levels of government, but having more teeth to actually make sure uh, that what they find and the recommendations that they make are actually considered by policymakers and those in government. I think that's a crucial thing that we need to see happen. And we also need at the municipal level the kind of auditors consistently that we do at the federal and provincial levels with the PBO and the FAO. Uh, you know, it's great for Doug Ford to one time uh, call in auditors and then unfortunately have us pay for the report and not actually get the recommendations but we should have at the municipal level an order that releases a report every year in the way that the pbo does and the fao does jay i always appreciate the time you make for conversations on the show thanks for being here and merry christmas same to you thank you jay goldberg joining us the ontario director of the canadian taxpayers federation get ready for some major tax changes in 2024. You'll see an increase to payroll taxes taking effect on January 1, and that will translate to more than $500 to you next year. There will, of course, be an escalation in the carbon tax. The alcohol escalator tax continues to do just that, escalate. There is uh, a hint at a digital services tax 
in the year ahead and the beat goes on. Look, it, it's way too easy. It is way too easy to complain about the taxes because you feel like you earned that money and then they just take it away from you, right? I do believe sincerely, I do, that the taxes that we pay are for the collective good. And I'm all for it. I'm all for the hospitals and the schools and the roads and the transportation infrastructure and and all of the things. It's, It's what keeps us healthy. It's what keeps our local economies, our national economies chugging along. We need these vital pieces of infrastructure. We need to make sure we're being looked after and we all need to play a part in that. I, I mean it sincerely, but sometimes it does get hard, doesn't it? I mean, just talking about a third party auditor makes me think about the federal government this year hiring a consultant to the tune of $700,000 to find out where it might be able to save money on hiring consultants. Like, it just defies imagination. Furthermore, what defies imagination is the amount of outsourcing that we have been doing to the tunes of billions of dollars federally when we already have hundreds of thousands of people working in our civil service. I don't understand that. I cannot square that circle. And I can bring it right down to the local level, and I'll just emphasize it again. Where do you get the money to create a mascot for a transit system. Honestly, like in a time where everybody is is squeezing nickels to try to get by and, and cut their own discretionary spending, where do we have money for things like that? Maybe it sounds like I'm picking a nit, but I just, I don't get it. So it does concern me that the taxes that are collected are not necessarily managed all that well. But but maybe it's just me. Like, how do you view it? Do you view it as paying into the collective good and ensuring that we've got the necessary health care, the necessary infrastructure, etc.? Or do you worry from time to time or more frequently that, you know what, I'm paying in and I'm seeing a whole lot of waste on the other end? Would love to hear your perspective on this. 519 519- 570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. I think there's a lot of taxpayers out there who are saying, I'm willing to pay a certain amount of tax if I'm going to get a real service out of it. But runaway spending and runaway taxes can't just be an end in itself. We need to make sure that every dollar government is taking out of our wallets is being spent really well. And quite frankly, that's not the case. And of course, that is often the concern, isn't it? That every dollar taken out of our wallets by way of taxes is not being spent well. I guess one's efficiency is another's necessary spending. I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one. It's been around for as long as I've been hosting shows like this, and I'm not sure it's going anywhere anytime soon. But Jay Goldberg, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, joins us on the heels of the annual New Year's Tax Changes Report from the Federation, highlighting the major tax changes that are coming our way 
in 2024. This includes uh, an increase to payroll taxes, which will cost uh, an individual worker up to $347 next year. Increases to the carbon tax will add more than 17 cents per liter of gas and 15 cents per cubic meter of natural gas as of April. And then, of course, the alcohol escalator tax kicks in again in April, as it does every year. That's why they call it an escalator tax. It'll be an increase of 4.7%. And the Taxpayers Federation points out that half the price of beer is already taxes. 65% of the price of wine is already taxes. And more than three quarters of the price of spirits is already taxes. Maybe that's why, according to a letter to the editor I read in this morning's Globe and Mail, the most popular gift for a teacher is an LCBO gift card. I mean, maybe it's because your kids give them a headache during the school year. I don't know. But the retired teacher said nobody in the staff room was swooning over gift cards to various retail stores. The the biggest prize a teacher could get was an LCBO gift card. I heard somebody say, though, just the other day that, in fact, I think it was on this show, that maybe instead of one of those gift cards or some other kind of gift for the teacher in your life, not that they are not deserving of the gift, but maybe it could be a tribute gift and you could gift them the $20 or $50 donation to Nutrition for Learning, for example. I believe it was Aaron Morahan from Nutrition for Learning that suggested a tribute gift might be the way to go for the teacher this year. Because really, how many gift cards and or coffee mugs does one teacher actually need? Nonetheless, this is where we're at. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation will continue to do what the Canadian Taxpayers Federation does, and that is keep their eyes on where the tax dollars go. Dave sends an email to Mike at 570news.com. There has to be some concern when the federal government gives a contract to Boeing for new aircraft to replace the aging military Aurora aircraft without going through the competitive bid process that everyone else has to go through, thus bypassing Canadian companies, $10 billion worth plus. It's long past time for politicians to get their collective heads out of their tail feathers. On on the heels of new aircraft, I also heard the story the other day about some brand new drones that were being purchased. I think it was like 10 drones for more than $2 billion. It was a pretty remarkable number. I didn't know drones could be so expensive. However, I think when you do any procurement on the part of a government at whatever level, you take the price and add 30%, right? Kind of like the bonus that Clark Griswold got at the end of Christmas vacation. Ah, whatever I gave you last year, add 20%. An update from the City News Center is on the way. And then we move into our flip side conversation for the day. And we're going to have a guest at the beginning to help us with it because he wrote such a great piece around the holiday specials that we revisit year after year, but why we do that and the role that the soundtracks of those specials plays in our desire to revisit them year over year. We'll talk about that coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570.
I'll bet you knew even before the kids started singing. Yeah, poor Charlie Brown isn't even happy. Something must be wrong with them because Christmas is coming. I'll bet you knew that was a Charlie Brown Christmas before Charlie Brown's voice even started there. One of the holiday classics that we revisit year after year after year. And I wonder, I wonder why that is. James DeVille is a professor of music at Carleton University, joins us for a conversation. James, good morning. Yes, good morning, Mike. Did that uh, soundtrack evoke some memories for you? Oh, yes. Um, We have, in our family at least, we have a tradition of uh, watching a Charlie Brown Christmas. It's actually the kickoff of our holiday watching. We start with that one and then work our way through the list. You know, and it occurs to me, and you, you express it so well in the piece that you wrote that sparked this conversation this morning, James, but Charlie Brown really is, as you hear right there, he, he he's not feeling the spirit of the season. He he feels that there must be something wrong with him. It's, it's not exactly, uh, at least at the beginning, the kind of heartwarming Christmas story you might expect it to be. Well, that's very true. And in fact, uh, in the end, too, um, it's not as if... Uh, He's converted to the spirit of Christmas that he is full of joy. He accepts the uh, congratulations for the tree from his colleague, from his friends. But, uh, you know, Linus is the one who really has the last word there. What is it about these sort of flawed heroes that keep us coming back year over year, James? Well, I think that we can personally identify uh, with them, whether it be Rudolph with his nose um, or uh, Charlie Brown and his eternally depressed state, I think that we feel somehow a kinship with these characters. Uh, even Frosty and his precarity, you know, I mean, he's got to melt at the end of the season and he comes back every year. And maybe that's one, re- and we come back every year too. Um, But at the end of the year, you know, and there's so much pressure and stress that we're under at this time, I think that we can really empathize with these, what I call, anti-heroes. Great point on Frosty. I'd almost forgotten about him. And yes, what a situation he faces as the weather warms up every year. He's got to disappear and then make his annual return. And, And we make our return annually to these films, to these holiday specials year over year. What is it about the music, the soundtracks for these holiday specials, James, that really help us make that emotional connection to them? Well, that's a good question. I think that it's uh, the simplicity of them and also the connection that we have um, with these characters who have come alive in terms of the audio, you know, the visual presentation I mean, the music itself, though, is, and some of the most effective Christmas music is actually rather slow in tempo, like the song that you just played or Silent Night or whatever. Um, I just think that there's something, uh, there's an accessibility that we have both to the words and to the music that, that we could even sing along with them, you know. 
There, there really is something, though, about music and its ability to evoke memories, nostalgia, tug at our heartstrings. I mean, and, and you would know this as well as anybody as a professor of music, but I, to this day, can hear a, a, a particular song and it will take me right back to the moment I first heard it or what I might have been experiencing back at that time, usually in the mm-hmm. 1980s. Those were my formative years, but there's just yeah. something about the connection. Yeah, um, it has yet to be pinpointed, but there's something in our brains that does connect with music. Um, you may have seen or heard like uh, examples of people who have dementia, for example, yet can remember the songs from their youth. Um, Oliver Sacks has an interesting video where someone who was really out of it, so to speak, um, could remember the songs from his youth. So I think there's more to it than just the heart thing, but I think there's a brain uh, element, too, that seems to function and kick in when music is involved. And as you pointed out a moment ago, it doesn't necessarily have to be upbeat. That, That theme that began a Charlie Brown Christmas was actually very slow musical style. And then, of course, we think about the holidays and maybe some religious connections and some of the more traditional carols that become a part of our holiday season. That's true. Um, And uh, as I point out in that piece, um, the bleak bleak midwinter was rated as one of the best carols in uh, 2008, by a BBC um, survey, and yet this one, it's also very slow and somber, and but it is eminently singable, as are most of the other ones. But yeah, um, that's not, it, it combines both, that particular carol combines both the fact that we are in the middle of winter, but also the fact that this should be a joyful time. So it's kind of this double-sidedness of the holidays, I think, that the music helps bring out. And I, th- I think you you sum it up so appropriately right there. It's probably why we can so easily identify with Charlie Brown, right? Because we are in this bleak midwinter today, as you and I talk, the shortest <laughs> day, right? We get the la- right. least daylight today than we'll get all year. That's right. Um and, you know, it also, though, has, uh, for people, it, it brings out emotions and memories, as you pointed out earlier, of people with whom you celebrated the holiday in the past. I can't think of anyone who enters the holiday season without thinking of someone lost or something uh, long gone, you know. Um, so that also feeds into it. And yet the pressure to feel, you know, joyful and optimistic, I'm sure there are many of your listeners who are not feeling that way at the moment. But these songs have those sides that you could identify with, you know, the happy old times with family, then, um, you know, the, then the sadness also, though, of having, uh, having lost someone. It's so well put, and I hadn't really considered the importance of the soundtrack until I read your excellent piece. James, thanks not only for writing it, but for making time to talk about it today. 
All right. Well, thank you, Mike, and uh, enjoy the holidays. Thank you, sir. I will, and you as well. All right. Bye. Bye. James Deville is a professor of music at Carleton University. He wrote a really interesting piece about how holiday soundtracks inspire hope for a little more love. And, you know, as as James is talking, it gets me thinking, like, if if Charlie Brown perhaps was the original anti-hero, right? It's a holiday special. It's a Charlie Brown Christmas. And yet Charlie Brown begins it by talking about how there must be something wrong with him because he's not feeling all the feels he's supposed to be feeling. What would we do without the holiday being right now? Right Here we are on this day, our last show together before at least I take a Christmas break. You're welcome to hang around with Larry Fedoric tomorrow, of course, and some of the other quote-unquote best-of programming you'll get through the week next week. Brock Greenhalgh will be here as well. It's going to be lots of fun. But we're on this day, the shortest day, as it's called, of the year, the winter solstice arriving tonight. The weather has us feeling bleak and dreary, and yet, just four days from now, it's Christmas. And how many of us have been enjoying a Christmas special or two on the way to this moment. You heard James say they always start in their house with a Charlie Brown Christmas and go from there. So this is what I was thinking as James and I were having this chat. If Charlie Brown was the original sort of anti-hero, what about, what about Clark Griswold? I mean, I can still think of, I can still hear in my, in my mind the song from Christmas Vacation, right? The greatest time of year, bump, bump, bump. You know how it goes, right? But then think of all of the things that happened to Clark in the midst of the holidays. And also that my favorite scene in the whole movie, kid you not, is Clark getting trapped in the attic, finding the old film projector, bundling up with whatever clothes he can find, and watching the old Christmas movies from Christmas has gone past. You can just, it just oozes the nostalgia. And despite all the madness that's going on in the house and around the holidays, he finds that time to remember all of those great times from Christmas's past. That that speaks volumes to me. Speaks volumes. I thought this would be a good springboard into I, what I think has become an annual conversation for us. What is your go-to Christmas special? I, I've shared with you before, for me it's always... And we still do it as a family, traditionally, on Christmas Eve. It is the 1951 Alistair Sim version of A Christmas Carol. That's the one we always have to watch. What about you? Surely you've got one in your family as well, that it wouldn't be Christmas unless you watched it, right? 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. Grant, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I we always like watching uh, National Lampoons. Of course, Christmas Vacation. But then this year, I want to focus on uh, a more religious uh, side for myself too. So, what are you going to watch? Uh, maybe some about. That relates to the the nativity scene. 
Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And you know what? I'm sure there's a film out there. I seem to recall gathering at Grandma's place on Christmas Day, and there was always something like that on TV. Darned if I can remember the name of it, though, because I'm such a mediocre Catholic. Kyle, good morning. Good morning. Well, we always watch our home videos on VHS still. It's probably still works on my VHS player. Do you really? Absolutely. That's cool. It is pretty fun. But uh, mine are definitely Santa Claus and Home Alone. I mean, I love National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's funny that you say that because in Elmira, on uh, the main street there, somebody has Cousin Eddie outside that has the sign that says his pooper is full. I love it. So, yeah, but those two, Home Alone and Santa Claus, just the music and the festivities. And, you know, uh, Santa Claus is filmed in Canada in Oakville, so you can't go wrong with that, right? Wait a minute. The Santa Claus, like the Tim Allen thing, that was filmed in Oakville? Yeah, you know what? I actually looked it up, and I drove past the place, and it still looks exactly the same as it did in the movie. No way. (laughs) Wait, wait. So Google it, check it out, check the address out. Maybe, you know, if you're going for a motorcycle ride, even in the summertime, you just pass by it and stuff. Absolutely. So there you go, my friend. Thanks, Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day. I I had no idea. There's a little piece of Christmas movie trivia I was unaware of. And I have to admit that I kind of soured on the whole Home Alone thing over the years. And I think mostly because didn't we all sour a little bit on Macaulay Culkin? The poor kid. Holy Hannah. He never stood a chance after the... Like, he was such a huge success. But in the last few years, came back to it, definitely is a keeper. The Wet Bandits, Kevin, the family, everything. It's a great little holiday movie, I would say. What is the go-to tradition in your home? What holiday special is on your list every year? It wouldn't be Christmas unless I watched you fill in that blank for us. On the Mike Farwell Show, this is City News 570. James DeVille, a professor of music at Carleton University, wrote a really cool piece about the soundtracks to some of our favorite holiday specials and the important role they play in our revisiting those specials year over year. And it's an opportunity for us then to talk about that very thing, the special we revisit year after year and maybe what role the music plays in that. I gotta love Dave's response via email to Mike at 570news.com. The Grinch, all caps in... No, sorry, it's not all caps, but it's in bold and large font. Uh, Yeah, and come on, what a great song, right? You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. I prefer the animated version. However, I'm going to get my first opportunity to see the Jim Carrey version because it's playing tonight at the Apollo. If you'd like to come out and join us please do because it's all for charity the brain injury association of waterloo wellington the food bank of waterloo region and oh yeah some little thing called farwell for hire it's put on by gord harris and his team at harris law it's at the apollo seven o'clock we're going to watch the grinch if you want to stay for the double feature office party follows the grinch but you bring a ten dollar donation or more if you feel like it or a new unwrapped toy, or a donation for the food bank, and just waltz right in there. Enjoy the show. Popcorn. Apollo sells beer. It's all good. We'll enjoy it, and we can watch Jim Carrey and the Grinch at 7, and then Office Party at 9. Devon Robertson, our guy on the other side of the glass, do you have a go-to traditional Christmas special that you always watch or movie? It's still that uh, 
stop motion Rudolph. No way. Really? The old claymation kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. From like the 60s, I think it is. Don't forget about Yukon Cornelius. He shows up in that one, right? And the Abominable Snowman. Oh, they bounce. (laughs) They bounce. (laughs) I love it. That's a classic for sure. Oh, I I love it. It's that one and uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Yep. That one's pretty timeless as well. But for me, I don't know why. There's just something really pleasing about the like stop motion look of that Rudolph. And I guess the fact that I've been seeing it every year since I was a kid, so there's that nostalgia factor to it. Exactly. And it should look the same as it did when you were a kid because it's nostalgic. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Let's go to the phones here from you. Harry, good morning. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. I was going to say Die Hard. No, you're not. Don't, don't, Harry, stop it. Stop it. No, it's not. It's arguably. It's not. It's no, it's, it's, there's no argument. It's not a Christmas movie. Stop it. But no, it totally is. It's totally not. It it does. It does. I'm telling you, it's arguably, ask, ask people, ask the next caller. No, I will not. I refuse to entertain this conversation. Are you done yet? Okay. Okay, I'm done. Okay. Okay. No, I'm telling you though. Google it. Settle down, okay, Harry? I hope you have a Merry Christmas, but settle down. You you as well. You as well. (laughs) Check it out. out. (laughs) Check it out. Like, I haven't seen it because it's a great action movie. And as the man who starred in it famously said, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. It's a blankety-blank Bruce Willis movie. You go tell him it's a Christmas movie. Go ahead. Stop it. This is what happened, okay? This is what happened. Someday, about 30 years ago, some socially awkward guy, because it had to be a guy, at an office Christmas party, thought he'd be clever in making conversation and said, you know what my favorite Christmas movie is? Die Hard. <laughs> and then suddenly it's, it just spread. Somehow, that, that one socially awkward dude made it happen. And now we still have people to this day trying to insist that it's a Christmas movie. But it's not. Christmas movies, you see, it's a genre, right? Just like action movies are a genre. And Die Hard fits none of the mold that is the genre of Christmas movies. So I have taken it upon myself to preserve the sanctity of the Christmas movie genre. And there is no Die Hard allowed inside. Simple as that. Valerie, good morning. Good morning. Um, my Christmas movie is A Wonderful Life. Excellent choice. And now this is not a Christmas movie, but I watch it every year at Christmas. Sound of Music? No. Okay. <laughs> I was just guessing. The Wizard of Oz. Oh, you know what? Somebody else said that to me the other day. Yeah. No, and so why, though? Why out of curiosity? I don't know. It always comes out at Christmas time, and I, I don't know. I just I just like it. Yeah. Well, maybe because we have time to watch the whole thing at Christmas time. Yeah. There you go. Thanks, Valerie. Okay. Have a great day. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. And I love how Valerie started that by saying, I know it's not a Christmas movie. I just watch it every Christmas. Fair enough. Uh, Danielle sends an email to Mike at 570news.com. Every year on Christmas Eve, my dad and I watch The Last Waltz, which is the Martin Scorsese doc of the band. And I've just introduced my daughter to Home Alone, still funny all these years later. I love the email from Mike to Mike at 570news.com. A Christmas story. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Mike, that's another great one. Of course, along with the leg lamp that comes in the box, marked fragile. Gotta love it. Andre, what's your go-to? What's your favorite Christmas special? 
Well, I'm going to keep it narrow, but thank you very much for the segment. Bring good memories from my mom and dad back in the days. Uh, my dad was always on the road, but when he came home, he always watched his uh, Walt Disney, especially uh, on Christmas Day, um, Snoopy and uh, Jack Ross, all the old ones. So it brings me a lot of great memories. Uh, now to my family, um, my son, eight-year-old Winter, he just wanted to watch Home Alone, all four. And I did not know that in the third one, Scarlett Johansson, Johansson as a teenager was in it. So it was cool. And the last thing I have to say, Mike, is uh, you said you're going to see uh, The Grinch with Jim Carrey. Uh, I think it's a great, good movie. Animation's always better. But uh, I did not know that it was for the cost of the BIA. So they are a fantastic organization. And I thank you. Uh, to everybody for the support and donation they do again in this community. You have a great Christmas, Mike. Thanks, Andre. Yes, the Brain Injury Association will be one of the beneficiaries of tonight's charitable movie night at the Apollo. We'll watch The Grinch with Jim Carrey. We'll watch Office Party. We'll have a drink, some popcorn, maybe even a few laughs as well. And speaking of nostalgia, I've got to get back because I recently found again Christmas Comes to Willow Creek. Tom Wopat, John Schneider, yes, the Dukes, the original Dukes of Hazard, made this Christmas movie. Hey, Grant was talking before about something with religious undertones. It's full of them, and it's awesome. So nostalgic. I'll watch that one, too. All right, an update from the City News Center is coming up. And then, arguably, the most important, the biggest story in our community this year. What got us talking in 2023? This story. It's coming up next on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570. It was, in my opinion, the biggest story in this community this year. Late June, University of Waterloo, three people, including a professor, stabbed in a gender studies class at the University of Waterloo. And so many layers to the story, from the violence itself to how the school managed communication about it. The day after, within hours of the stabbings having taken place, we were joined in studio by Amy Morrison, an associate professor of English at the University of Waterloo, for this conversation that really got us talking in 2023. How are you today? Um, I'm starting to come to terms with the long-term impacts of what's going to happen from this. Um, as the incident was taking place on Wednesday, there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of worry and a suspicion among many of us who teach gender studies courses um, and these types of topics that this seemed like it was motivated by by something that exceeded the people in the room. And as that became clearer and clearer, that worry built as well about how the institution and how the police were going to recognize that this was a hate crime directed to gender identity and gender expression. And now that that's become clear that an interview with the accused as well as circumstantial evidence seems to be pointing to this as a hate crime and that the police and the institution are acknowledging this. Now we have to come to terms with the fact that it's really just not one person, but it's an ideology of hatred that's growing in online spaces around what they call wokeness or gender ideology or all of these mischaracterizations of of people who teach this material and people who learn this material. So the danger is not immediate, but it is diffuse. And we have to come to terms with what it means to continue to teach in a world where people are going to act on this ideology in violent ways that imperil us 
where we work and where we learn. And that feels like something that's going to take a while to process. Does it change the way that you feel in the space that you teach? Yeah, it does. Uh, And that's the worst thing is I have never in 19 years at the university. It'll be my 19th anniversary on campus tomorrow. Uh, I know I only look 17, so hold your remarks. But um, never in that time have I gone into a room looking for the exits to make sure I could escape. Never have I thought about covering windows or what would I do if a violent attack, where is a chair that I could pick up? How would I defend myself? I have been remarkably privileged to be free of that kind of existential worry. And I don't think it should be a privilege. I think it should be a right. I think we should all be able to go to our schools and our workplaces without having to always, at some level of our souls, be on guard for someone who hates us enough to try to come into our workplaces, our schools, our homes, to kill us based on some uncontrollable factor about what body we walk around in or what types of books we want to read or what types of students we teach. I think it's really important that we try to remember that that's not a normal way to go through the world and we need to work towards getting back to a place where we can feel that kind of safety and not imagine every day when we go to work that we're in a potential war zone. You mentioned a moment ago the mischaracterization of the people who teach these courses and the material that the courses cover. Can you help us understand better who these teachers are and what the courses are about? Yeah, these courses, well, I'll tell you how I run my courses. My courses, I have between 20 and 40 students and I spend the first couple of weeks learning who they are. I learn their names. I tell them things about me. We share our backgrounds together. What we're trying to do in those first few weeks is build a learning community where I can admit to them when I don't know something and they can admit to me when they don't know something. And I can say, we're going to read, you know, something about um, uh, gender ideology as manifest in online spaces. And you're going to encounter materials that might surprise you or challenge you, but we'll look at it together and we'll try to keep each other safe. When you say those people, imagine that those people are in this room or when you say us, imagine that not everybody in this room is the same as you. So we have to get to know each other as individuals carefully so that we can come together as a community where we can say, I don't like this and I don't know why, or this is not how I was raised in this material confuses me or this is not how I thought about things. We need to take risks together. And so we spend a lot of time in our classes um, coaching students through how do you encounter ideas that might be new to you? How do you incorporate them into what you already know? Or sometimes it means that you have to let go of things that you already knew because you've learned something different. I will say I learn from my students all the time. I make myself vulnerable to them. I will say this material really upsets me when I read it, but I think it's important to teach or they will correct me about something that I'm that I'm wrong about because I don't have the same experiences that they do and they care enough about me to say, like, I think you have that wrong and, and I trust them enough to say, gosh, I think you're you're right, right? How about you come up and teach for five minutes and we'll we'll all learn. We're spending a lot of time acknowledging that the material might be difficult and that we have to take care of each other so that we can learn. It's like we're all trying to take the training wheels off our bike at the same time and we have to acknowledge that we're going to fall down and scrape our knees and that we need to have band-aids for each other. Like that's how it goes. It's not indoctrination. I mean, I can't even get sometimes my students to read the syllabus unless we do it together in class, right? Like I can't change their politics. I certainly, I can't turn them trans, right? As if that was a thing. I'm not 
grooming students. You know, like these, we tend to laugh at it because it's so ridiculous the way that these classrooms get spoken about online or this power that people imagine professors have to convert their students to, to something or other. Um, and we don't, and we don't want that. And I think we can't ignore it anymore. We can't laugh at it for being so wrong. We have to ask, like, how do people get this idea of what happens in my class, which is absolutely not what happens in my class? And, and how can I make sure that my students in my classroom are kept safe from that as well? It's not just people sort of talking crap about professors online. Now it's making it dangerous for students to attend these classes, and that's not acceptable. Can you take us back, Amy, to Wednesday afternoon as this terrible event was unfolding at the university? Yeah. So I was, um, I just dropped my kid off somewhere and I had got a series of text messages from my friends. Oh my God, are you safe? And and I was like, what? And uh, And I looked through the news. I couldn't find anything. And I checked on Twitter and then I found some stuff. And I was like, oh my God. And the communications coming from the university were were none. So there were some emails that were circulating on the email listservs in my department, English department, which is in Higgy Hall, from our department administrator who was sending stuff that she had heard from other employees or stuff that she was seeing or or stuff uh, sometimes a little bit more formal from the university itself. But it was very confusing about, um, I mean, by the time I got word of it, the incident was already over, but people were still locked in their rooms, but then told to leave, but then told to go back into the rooms and lock the door, but then told to stay in the rooms but have the door open and then told to leave, but leave the door open, but then told not to leave unless they had an escort. And and so there was like a lot of, of confusion and worry about that. And the best information actually was coming out of the student newspaper, big ups to the student newspaper, the imprint that had people on the ground immediately doing eyewitness interviews and, and posting as best as they could. So it was a sort of information vacuum full of terror and my immediate thought went to oh no this is a classroom attack on some subject in the humanities and it it was i'm sad that that was true but many of us immediately thought oh i hope this is not a hate crime it was from the imprint that i first learned about this you're right they did excellent reporting and it was there that it was reported from one of the witnesses that the individual had come into the room, asked what the class was about, and then the attack began. Yeah. Has there been any commitment in the 36, coming up on 48 hours since, from the university to explain what may have gone wrong or what will be done better moving forward? Well, the practical issue that the university has spoken about addressing is the WatchSafe app, which is an emergency alert app. You know, so we were getting messages like through email from people and not everybody's got email alerts set up on everything now, especially young people are not very interested in email. And so this app was supposed to have push notifications that would let you know immediately, like an emergency alert system. And it had just been tested that morning, in fact. And uh, in the afternoon when we needed it, it didn't work, right? So notifications were coming from that app 90 minutes after the incident took place. Um, and so the university is sort of committed to to looking at making sure that that app is actually working when we need it. There was a rally yesterday and the the president of the university uh, spoke quite movingly about the nature of the attack as being rooted in crime and how we need to protect vulnerable members on campus, people who work in these fields and people who identify um, as queer or as trans or as feminist and who are visibly 
marked um, by the categories that have been singled out for hate. And so articulating that commitment to supporting those people in that research, offering counseling services, um, I think is is the best, most immediate response. And, and moving forward, we will have to ask how it comes to be that a graduate of our own university who just, just graduated in, in convocation ceremonies not two weeks ago was so full of some kind of hate about something happening on his own campus and so full of misunderstanding of that that he was moved um, to bring weapons and and try to harm people. It it hurts very much that that person came from our own campus, and I think there are cultural questions there. Um, I mean culture about the university culture and about um, how are our students being supported in, in developing personally and in their character and in their connection to disciplines that are not their own while they're on campus, right? So it hurts that a University of Waterloo student has now come to a classroom to try to kill other University of Waterloo students. How do we have such a divide on campus, even among our own community, is something I think is going to take a lot of time and thought um, to work through. That is an excellent point and one I hadn't considered. But no matter the discipline one studies at the University of Waterloo, where are we failing in that culture Mm -hmm. that something like this could happen? Yeah, I don't know. I mean... University studies are very high pressure. Um, The University of Waterloo students have very high entrance averages. Most of them work in co-op. They are very busy. Um, They are living in an environment of economic precarity with a bad job market and housing prices that are bananas and inflationary pressures. And they've heard their whole lives about how important it is to be the best at everything and to work incredibly hard and to just push and push and push and push so that when they get out, they will be able to begin to repay all the debts they have accrued to come here to be able to scrabble together some kind of life. And and that feeling of scarcity, I think, um, just produces a lot of fear and anxiety in people. It's easy to demonize an outgroup as taking away things from you that you feel you're never going to get access to. I'm conjecturing here, but like in the work that I do, I I see as a social media researcher, I I see a lot these discourses of us versus them and they're rooted in scarcity. There don't seem to be enough good jobs. There isn't enough time. Our studies are so high pressure. We have to do co-ops at the same time that everyone is sort of pushed to the edge of their capacity to cope with everything and that the there isn't a lot of time for personal development on campus. There isn't a lot of time for, you know, taking a science fiction course when you're, you know, say a computer science student because your curriculum is already so packed and so so driven um, that I wish there was time for people to achieve what a liberal education was always meant to achieve, which was allow you to grow into uh, a broader and deeper understanding of how the world works um, in addition to your specific task that you wish to undertake within it, right? All of us would do well to know a little bit more about history and our place in the world and about patterns of economic development and boom and bust cycles and how people get along with each other and, you know, how we build societies. If we had a little bit more time to think about those things, a little bit more peace to to learn about each other, a little bit more space, right? To be at ease with our own thoughts. I don't know that we would be so anxious and scared some of us are anxious and scared and we hide and some of us are anxious and scared and we lash out with knives and it's a tragedy for everybody including the accused you mentioned at the outset amy that you've given some thought over these last hours to 
the longer term implications of what happened on Wednesday. What do you see when you think about that? I think I will be discussing this with my students um, for some time. I don't, you know, we'll have a whole new crop of students that will be starting. I'm teaching two first year English courses, one of them on digital lives and one of them on academic writing in the fall term. And I'll have a brand new crop of 18 year olds who will have just moved to Waterloo coming out of a summer where they've heard about this violent incident on campus. I expect they'll be scared. I expect their parents will be scared. Um, That part of our orientation that I will have to be doing in my classes with these students is how do we um, how do we incorporate this event into our understanding of our role here? How can we know that things like this might happen, but be brave anyways? How can we live with some sort of risk assessment that's just the calculus of that has been altered now? These risks are not hypothetical anymore. They're quite low, I expect, but they're not hypothetical at this point. And, and so that'll be a little bit about orienting ourselves to that new reality and, and making space for being afraid of these kinds of things. And then talking still about why it's important for us to address difficult topics. And I don't mean difficult because they're so controversial. I mean, difficult because the scholarly conversation is always looking for new complexities, right? Looking for new angles and new shades. And that that as we're sort of carving up this you know, rock into a diamond, it just gets more and more facets to it, right? And you have to keep turning it around to see how the light reflects. It's it's never been about making everybody believe the same thing. It's about having an openness of mind big enough to turn the diamond, to see it from all of these angles, right? And that, that diamond can be something beautiful, not something that we see as as imperiling our children with groomers or having gender ideology where we're converting students and forcing them into these like political, like that's absolutely not what we, what we do. And that's something we're going to have to work on sharing a little bit more broadly with our own students and sharing a little bit more broadly with the culture at large. I was glad that our community was able to put together that rally. However, hurriedly yesterday, I think that speaks to the desire on the part of the community to be, a part of this response, but mm-hmm. that was immediately, and you alluded to this rally earlier too. What do you see, Amy, as the role for our community more broadly in the wake of this? I think I would like for us to think a little bit more about what the role of a university is, right? So universities become more and more expensive, right, to go to. And as we begin to spend more and more money on this, we want to believe we have going to have an immediate return on our investment, right? We're going to like plow our way through. We're going to get great co-ops. We're going to get super high marks. And then we're going to get the best job in the world and we can stop thinking about stuff, right? And that makes people really anxious about what happens on campus. Like my students are often quite anxious. Like, how am I going to convert this thing that you're teaching me into an incredibly high grade so that I can get this job that I want, right? So people are not even there in the moment. And that's like, we'll have to think a little bit more about repositioning again the university as a place where we become more mature thinkers, more mature participants in our civic culture, that we will be exposed to a variety of things that may not seem immediately, instrumentally, job-worthy, useful, but that build in us a kind of emotional wherewithal and cultural knowledge so that we can address other people's differences without feeling threatened to the point of acting violently 
about it, right? If we all took a little bit more time to have a broader education where we're able to learn about others and understand others, a sort of let a thousand flowers bloom sort of situation where, you know, the humanities investigates questions of technology differently than engineering does, right? And engineering understands what a social network is for a little bit differently than sociologists understand it, right? And if we had more opportunity to sort of build a broader base of more general knowledge, I think we would all be a little bit more resilient and able to cope with the stresses such that we do not need to create monsters out of our colleagues and fellow students so that we can be angry and afraid of them as a way of kind of feeling like we're going to have a better life if those people would just stop doing what they're doing. I think that's short-sighted and, and being so busy and so driven and so instrumental and school is so expensive and the pressures are so high does not lead us to making space for that kind of thoughtfulness. And I really think we need it. I wish I could take one of your classes well, come Honestly, on down. I might just do that. You come got there down. too late, Miss 19 years. I was there a long time before <laughs> that. But, well, uh, damn it. And, you know, <laughs> I teach courses about the selfie, and I teach courses on media studies. Maybe I'll have you in. You can come. Hey, do you want to come guest lecture in one of my media studies courses? I'm asking live, so you can't say no. 100% I'm there. there. Go. Okay. Done. Thank you for coming here today and being a part of this important conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Amy Morrison, Associate Professor of English at the University of Waterloo, a conversation we had back in June, the day after a man stabbed three people, including a professor, in a gender studies class at the university. Biggest story in our community this year, I say, yes. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. We are headed into the home stretch, our final 30 minutes for the year, looking ahead to the holidays. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite parts is the food. I love me. I love me a turkey dinner. Sometimes I'm so spoiled that our friends at the Village Caterer will bring a turkey dinner as our meal in the media room before a Kitchener Rangers games. It's unreal. It happens. It's unreal. And so if you're anything like me and enjoy a good turkey dinner, you might feel that fatigue afterwards, you know, the turkey coma. But have we been unfairly and unjustly blaming the turkey all this time for the so-called turkey coma? We'll find out thanks to a prof at the University of Waterloo next. Stay with us on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. So you enjoy a delicious holiday dinner, and then, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes later, you're ready for a nap, right? It's the gosh darn turkey coma. Gets you every time, or does it? Maybe, maybe just maybe, it's it's not the turkey after all. Dr. Christian Euler is a researcher and professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Waterloo, and joins us for a chat. Christian, good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine, thank you. How are you? Great. Good. Yeah, good, good. Good. So, 
the, the so-called turkey coma. I mean, I've been hearing about this for a very long time, and as I've always understood it, it's the tryptophan in the turkey that makes us tired, isn't it? Well, that's certainly the story that we've all heard, and I too have heard this story or had heard this story for, you know, many years. Every time we have that holiday dinner, talking about the turkey coma, um, but you know, as some of these stories go, it, it might not be true. No kidding. So, are we are you here then as the defender of the turkey? <laughs> like did the turkeys put you up to this christian that's what i'm getting at <laughs> you can no i have no uh allegiance to big turkey okay <laughs> no allegiance to big turkey i love it i can't believe yeah. i had to wait all year for that line <laughs> okay so what what should we really know then if it's not the turkey or the tryptophan yeah. at least not in and of itself what's contributing to that holiday meal post-holiday meal fatigue well, I should note that tryptophan can, in, in certain doses, really can make us feel tired. It's just that there's not really enough in turkey. We'd have to eat so much turkey for that to be the effect uh, that we see. But really what's going on is that we have turkey with these carby sides, right? So we have mashed potatoes, we've got our stuffing, we've got our bread. And actually, uh, those sides, when we have a lot of that all at one time, that's what causes us to have that sort of drowsy effect 30 to 40 minutes after the meal. So first, before we move on to those other impacts, the tryptophan, because I don't want to mislead people. As you said, it does have a sedation effect, but how much of it would we have to consume in order for it to be the sole culprit of making us tired after the meal? It's a great question. I can't give you an exact number, but what I can say is that there would be other problems before the tryptophan drowsiness uh, in order if, if you were getting enough from that meal, right? You're talking about pounds and pounds of turkey to get a, a significant dose of tryptophan. And I should note that tryptophan is actually present in a lot of the other foods we eat all the time and don't associate uh, with that sort of drowsiness. Uh, other meats, tofu, quinoa, dairy, fish, it's, it's across the board. So um, really, I, I can't give you an exact number, but I think you'd have to eat so much that it would be, there'd be so many other problems first before you would even be thinking about, you know, how tired you are. All right. Well, let me just, let me just say this, Dr. Euler, as I get ready for the holidays, and I mentioned already how much I enjoy a good turkey dinner. Challenge yeah. accepted, sir. Challenge. <laughs> okay, so these other carbs that are on our plate that make us a little drowsy after the meal, what what are they doing? Like, what's happening to us that brings on yeah. this fatigue? For sure. So when we eat those carbs, we, we break, our body breaks them down into sugar, and that's how they enter our bloodstream as, is as sugar. And when that happens, there's an insulin release. The insulin lets our cells take up that sugar to use it as energy. And so if we have a big carby meal, we get a really strong spike in the insulin. And then what happens is all that blood sugar just drops. So we get this really big fluctuation in our blood sugar. And that's actually what causes the drowsiness when we have that big drop in the, in the blood sugar after that spike. I, I guess the, the, the main answer is probably everything in moderation. But I'm wondering if there are ways, if there are things we can do to mitigate these effects, as opposed to perhaps just consuming less of all of the things at the meal. Well, here's where you're going to doubt my um, 
my aforementioned non-allegiance to Big Turkey because <laughs> the answer here, ironically, is actually to have a little more turkey on your plate than carbs at your holiday dinner. <laughs> because the protein, that's, right? That's because of the protein, yeah. yeah. So if we take some protein with our carbs, that helps to level out that glucose spike, that blood sugar spike, and that can help us feel um, a little less drowsy following that meal. And of course, eating a smaller meal can also help. But as I always say, everything in moderation, including moderation, and the holidays are a time to indulge, right? They are. Yeah. So, okay. So you've been busted now on your allegiance to big turkey. And maybe, maybe what we do is just like make little napping pods for everybody that comes over. If you're going to host the holiday meal, make sure you have enough food and enough places for people to recline once they've consumed all the food. I think it's a great idea. You know, for me, for me, the tradition of the the post-holiday meal nap is is really part of the ritual of of the holidays. And and so I'm into it. You know, give me a spot to sleep and I'll come right over. Absolutely. And, And I guess the other thing then for us to take away from this conversation is that, yes, we've talked about the turkey coma and the tryptophan for all of these years and turkey obviously associated with the holidays. But based on what you're sharing with us around the impact that carbs have on our system. Frankly, we could end up in the quote-unquote turkey coma on any given Tuesday, depending on what we ate for dinner. Exactly. Absolutely. If we're if we're taking in a big carby meal, it doesn't matter whether we're doing that on the holidays or some other uh, other time of year, right? So you mentioned how the protein can kind of help to counteract this. So does that speak then, Christian, to the the balance we really should be looking for on our plates all the time? Well, I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian. So, um, you know, I can't say too, too much about what the appropriate way to fill your plate is, right? Um, but what I can say is that during the holidays, if you're looking to avoid that coma, you, you might want to go for a little more turkey on the plate. Right, because those carbs have that effect that we've talked about, the effect That's of the right. spike and then the subsequent fall, so to speak. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it really interesting stuff, and you're a great sport about it. I hope you really enjoy the holidays, and thanks for making time for the show. Well, thanks for having me on. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye. Okay, bye now. Dr. Christian Euler is a researcher and professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Waterloo. It's not just the turkey. And no, Dr. Euler has no allegiance to big turkey. That's a great line. I'm going to remember it. I might save it and bring it back again and again and again in 2024. It's actually more likely that the reason you're feeling a little tired after a big turkey dinner is because of all of those other carbohydrates that are on your plate. You know, the potatoes, the stuffing, the breads, my favorite, the dessert, although I really do love the stuffing. And that is what likely has the greatest impact. In fact, you can offset that just a little bit by maybe, just maybe, consuming a little bit more turkey. Get that protein to offset all of those carbs. But is it just me, or is it the carbs that are just generally speaking, so much more enjoyable, right? Especially the desserts. I'm looking forward to all of the things. I really am, including the big meal. My, I've talked about this with so many people, and, and particularly over the last number of months, because Paul Fixter has joined me on Kitchen Arrangers broadcasts, and when we've been on the road, which we have a few times 
take these walks on game day or to fill some time on off days, whatever the case may be. And we have both agreed that Thanksgiving is hands down our favorite holiday because you get the big turkey dinner, the family gets together, you spend some time with the people that matter the most to you, and you remove the whole, you know, commercialized pressure to buy gifts with it. Although I got to say, I'm pretty pumped. We've been talking about it in our household. Everybody seems pretty ready. We're looking forward to Christmas morning as well. It's a a fun time. Ooh, I just remembered we'll have to go over to the uh, local coffee shop in our pajamas. I hope our teenager isn't too old for that because that started randomly several years ago. And uh, I hope we maintain that tradition as well. Go over and get a hot chocolate first thing in the morning whilst still wearing pajamas. Nonetheless, when it comes to the big holiday meal, don't just blame the turkey, you turkey. It's likely that quote-unquote turkey coma caused by all of the carbohydrates on your plate. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, it is that time. Parting shots. So if you've got one, take it. And it's your last opportunity to do this of 2023, at least with yours truly. If Larry has some parting shots for you tomorrow, you can take your parting shots at Larry. If Brock's got your parting shots next week, you can take your parting shots at Brock. But if you want to take a parting shot at me, this is your last ding-dang chance in 2023. A break and back with parting shots. On the Mike Farwell Show, this is City News 570. We are here with our final opportunity for parting shots for the day, for the year, because after today, I'm out of here. I think I feel as though that's been a recurring theme today. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to rub it in. I'm pretty excited for the holidays. Quickly, uh, I received information from the site selection panel with the future of care together here in the region. The site selection panel being the group that is determining the best site for the new joint hospital. Not for your joints, but, you know, joint together between Grand River and St. Mary's. But the new mega hospital, let's call it, here in the region of Waterloo. So the update on the site selection is that they received five proposals of properties for consideration by their close date of November the 16th. They have now whittled that down based on the selection criteria to three and created a shortlist. Now, they're going to go through the next step of the process, which is to identify the recommended and alternate, uh, alternate pardon me, site. Except they're not telling us what the three shortlisted sites are. I want to know. Is that okay? Can I know? Can I know what the, like, don't, don't tell me you've shortlisted them without telling me what, what the shortlist is. It's a shortlist. It won't take you long to tell me. Please. And thank you. No? There are three sites that have been shortlisted. Uh, and, and Phil sent an idea the other day via email to Mike at 570news.com that I didn't think was the worst idea I've ever heard. Phil wrote, imagine if the region did a land swap for Fairview Mall. Malls are literally dying. Let's acknowledge that. That lot has plenty of current slash, slash future hospital building and parking space. Central for quick EMS access and car staff and already GRT LRT accessible thanks to a $1 billion public project. Yeah, go ahead. Call me crazy. 
I won't call you crazy, Phil. I don't think that's the worst idea I've heard. I wonder if the land at Fairview Mall is on the short list. I don't know, because all the site selection panel is telling us is that they have created a short list. But, but what are the three sites on the list? The suspense is killing me. All right, let's go to the phones. Jersey Bell, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. I, I want to take the opportunity to wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and, and a good time off until you come back to call that game for the Kitchen Rangers at the end of the year. Um, and I just want to say, too, I just, uh, you know, uh, things haven't been perfect in my life, but I'd, I'd like to think that uh, I've arrived at a, at a pretty decent place. And, uh, you know, for all the problems that we have here, uh, of course, not very many have, have affected me directly, but you know, we have to be thankful for for living in the, the kind of country that we live in and, um, you know, and uh, accept that uh, things might not be perfect, but things are pretty good all around. Billy, I appreciate that. A Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. Sure thing. Thank you. And it's a great sentiment. I admit that on my better days, I can absolutely think that way. And on my less good days, you know, earlier today might have been one of those moments in a day. Uh, I have a hard time because things are tough. And gosh darn it, do I want things to happen more quickly sometimes? The wheels of bureaucracy move rather slowly. I think we... I think we do a pretty good job of getting in our each other's way around here sometimes with our multiple layers of municipal government, but I'm not going to go any further than that. We we had a heated discussion along those lines earlier today. I'm not necessarily proud of it, but sometimes these things happen. This is a real show. I'm a real human being, and I have weak moments, and that was probably one of them. But nonetheless, uh, I think, again, the general sentiment from Billy is spot on. It is spot on. There are lots of problems out there. There are problems we can find here. We can pick a whole lot of nits. And yet, bigger picture, I think we're doing pretty uh, pretty all right around here. I, I don't think I would go so far as to say uh, the country is broken at all. Another quick note that I made this morning in hearing on all news mornings that Ashlyn Clancy would be officially sworn in today as a now official member and the second of Ontario's Green Party. Ashlyn, of course, had been the Ward 10 councillor in the city of Kitchener. She ran in the by-election. She won the by-election handily. She is now, and as she gets sworn in today, a newly minted member of the Ontario Greens. Do you know, do you know how many Green Party members, either provincial or federal, that there are in the country, in the entire country do you know how many people have been elected under the green party banner let me run you through the numbers in the territories there are zero alberta zero saskatchewan zero manitoba zero see what's happening here quebec zero nova scotia zero newfoundland They don't even have a Green Party, so uh, zero. In New Brunswick, you will find three provincially elected Green MPPs. Prince Edward Island, two. British Columbia, where I think we would all expect there to be. Some MLAs, members of the Legislative Assembly, provincial Greens, there are two. And now with Ashland Clancy, 
there are two here in Ontario. So that is nine members of a political Green Party elected provincially. Oh, but wait, there's more. Our federal members, there are two. Elizabeth May, of course, who's back as the leader of the federal Greens, and oh yeah, Mike Morris, Kitchener Centre. So if you take the nine elected provincially, add two federally, carry the one. Oh, that's 11. 11 members of a Green Party, either provincial or federal. And three of them, Mike Morris, Mike Schreiner in Guelph, and Ashlyn Clancy are right around these here parts. Three of the 11 in the entire country, right here in southern Ontario. Is that telling us something? I mean, if there's going to be a green surge, is it starting right here in the region of Waterloo? Just something that occurred to me when I heard the news this morning that Ashlyn Clancy would be officially sworn in today. Three of the 11 either provincial or federal across the country, right here in, I I don't, should I even say southwestern Ontario? It's basically the region of Waterloo and then just down the road in Guelph. Yeah, something I found interesting. Thought maybe you would too. Uh, Back to the phones we go. Grant, hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) What are we going to do without our clown Mike? What are you going to do without your clown Mike? That's a good question. And what are you going to do? I think you're going to be so bored that you want to come back, right? So why why not just go for Christmas and then come back, right? I am going to go for Christmas, and then I am going to come back on oh, January the 2nd. Well, that's too long, though. Why? What about New Year's? Doesn't like New Year's is like Christmas. Uh, ah, It's all part of the same holiday, Grant. You don't need that. Oh, I think I need that time. You can work straight through. Yeah, I, like like you said, the, I always thought the turkey was always the one that made you tired. I, you I miss, see, now we learned something today, didn't we? I, I yeah, I miss mom's meals because she she would make this sweet potato dish. Oh yeah, baby! Put tons of brown sugar on it. Yeah, I, I love it. Well, listen, Grant, you have a very happy holiday. Okay, my friend. Yes, likewise. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate that. And don't worry about it, as our buddy the Moose would say. Don't worry about it. I'll be back on January the 2nd, okay? Joe, good afternoon. Afternoon, Mike. Uh, I just want to say Merry Christmas. Uh, if I don't see you or hear from you between now and when you're back on the air. Thank uh, you very much. The very same yeah. to you, sir. Um, yeah, just uh, briefly, who called the Greens win in Kitchener Center? Remember I called in and I told you? Mike, Greens are going to win Kitchener Center. Remember? No, I don't remember that. I'm uh, sorry. That's fine. You have a selective memory. That's <laughs> I honestly don't remember, but trust me, that's not uncommon for me these days. But good call. But hope over the holidays, all you liberal lovers and liberal voters realize that with all this tax taxation coming down the pipeline after I listened to your segment there with uh, the... Um, the Taxpayers well, Federation, yeah. Right, right. Thank you. Uh, are you done with the Liberals, people? Are you done? Let's vote in proper government, okay? And stop <laughs> taking the money out of our pockets. All right, Joe. Can't afford the Liberals. Merry Christmas, Mike. We'll see you next time. Merry Christmas, Joe. We'll see you next time. Just for the record, 
just in the interests of fair play, conservative governments have been known to implement taxes. I know, that's shocking. Shocking. I know. But, Joe, you know that too. Steve, I got about 60 seconds. Okay, parting shot, quick one. Yes, sir. Um, so I had to go to Vaughn yesterday for uh, retrieve a graph for my son. So I'm just going to say, if the OPP was actually serious about safety on our highways, and I guess by extension the RCMP for the northern communities, they would do something about the amount of vehicles, truck vehicles, commercial vehicles, that seem to have adopted the, the left lane as of late. And I can tell you, all through Toronto, it was the same thing. Transport trucks all the way out in the hammer lane. It's got to stop. It's ridiculous. Uh, and I'll just wish a happy and Merry Christmas to you and happy holidays. You deserve it. Thoroughly enjoy your show. I love venting every day. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. I love that you choose this as your place to vent every day. That's kind of what we're here for. And I really appreciate you enjoying the show. I feel for our truckers out there because sometimes I just think with the volume of traffic, they end up in the hammer lane when they have no interest in being there. Your point is well taken, though, and it makes me think about dedicating lanes to our transport trucks. But I think the last thing we need is more lanes. I don't know. It's not an easy answer. I feel your pain driving on the 400 series highways, though. That's it. That's all. There is no more today or for me anyway until 2024. Devon Robertson is our guy on the other side of the glass. We're going to get you an update from the City News Centre and then make way for my man Rob Snow. And now you know is coming up. My name is Mike Farwell. Have a very Merry Christmas. A Happy New Year. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.